welcome back to another episode of Closing the Loop. Today's guest is Lynn Alden, founder of Lynn Alden Investment Strategy, board director of Swan Bitcoin, and advisor to Ego Death Capital. Lynn is one of the most highly regarded voices in finance today, both for her excellent commentary on the macroeconomic landscape, as well as for her sober analytical approach to understanding Bitcoin, and for her ability to distill what are often complex topics requiring a multidisciplinary background into insights that many are able to understand and have subsequently come to greatly appreciate. With all that's going on in the world today, I thought that now would be a perfect time to sit down for a chat with Lynn. Enjoy. And there we go. We're recording. Lynn, how are you? It's good to see you again. Pretty good. How have you been? Great. So last time we spoke was in uh, Lofoten. We had a remarkable uh, experience in Oslo for the Oslo Freedom Forum, which we were both at. And then after that, a few of us went uh, up north and spent a couple nights in Lofoten, which was an area I wasn't even aware of prior to our, our trip there. But it ended up being just, uh, well, first of all, beautiful uh, landscape and all that kind of stuff. And then hanging out with a bunch of Bitcoiners and a bunch of uh, human rights people and human rights activists was a very unique and powerful and special experience. And uh, I mean, maybe first you can just comment on what that experience was like for you. I think overall, that's got to be my favorite event that I've been to, um, mm. because mostly what I go to is investment related events um, and and or the, the you know, the, the broader uh, Bitcoin conference that happens every year, um, whereas that one, because the principal focus was human rights uh, rather than investing, uh, I found it to be just a lot more meaningful in general. And then that 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 small group that that traveled north, basically getting to know human rights activists uh, that are that are generally using Bitcoin in some way, uh, and and seeing you know what are their why are they using it, what are their struggles with it, uh, what does it mean to them. Um, and then learning from from other people that are in the Bitcoin space, especially you know that fill in gaps uh, for us. For, so you know people that are more technical than me, for example, I can use that opportunity to learn from them, uh, like I learned from Obi and 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 Matt O'Dell and, and others. Um, mm -hmm. So you know that was basically just a really um, just worthwhile trip in my view. Is it was, it was uh, I think one of those things that that will probably build memories for quite a while because it, it shows really what this all means and what and what why people are so passionate about this, this space. Totally. I think, you know, as you were just saying that what struck me, maybe a good way to contextualize it is it kind of puts you, it confronts you or puts you in face to face with the ends, right? When we go to all these Bitcoin investment conferences, it's kind of like the means, right? Bitcoin is a means to something. And we often speculate and talk about it, but to be so up close and personal with people that are already using it as an ends and that end primarily being, I think, broadly speaking, freedom. Right, the ability to live the life that you choose without, uh, without uh, impediments that are imposed upon you right, by authoritarian regimes wherever they be around the world and be they kind of surreptitious in the form of central banking cartels that have you know, gotten out of control or whether they be more uh, overt in the, in the form of you know, literal authoritarian regimes that are prohibiting people from doing what we would consider to be living a normal life. And uh, just hearing those stories and being in touch with those people uh, was inspiring because as I have often remarked in the past, it's easy to kind of sit from our vantage point in this part of the world and recognize the problems that exist everywhere, even in our parts of the world, 
but be able to do so in a somewhat of an insulated way and, you know, have this be more of a, I don't think we treat it as a novelty, but more of a novelty than people that are using it day to day in order to survive. And it was very uh, powerful to be confronted with those people. And then, as you say, in that more intimate setting up North, be able to hear more of their stories and connect with those people and really like feel what this is all about and how it's all unfolding here and now, not at some imagined point in the future. Yeah, it's, it's one thing to read about that type of thing in news, right? So a lot of those use cases I was already familiar with, in part due to Alex Gladstein's work on it, uh, you know, mm. bring light to it. But there's also, you know, there were articles in The Guardian or in, in Reuters about, you know, how people were using Bitcoin uh, in some of these authoritarian regimes. But it's a very different experience when you actually meet them in person, get to know them, hear their story. Uh, rather than just read about it. And mm-hmm. uh, another segment of that trip is that some of us went to um, Norway's parliament because um, they had uh, tried to ban Bitcoin mining unsuccessfully, or at least a, you know, a, a small group of politicians did, didn't get p- past the broader thing. And so some of the, the, other, the politicians on the other side were interested in maybe learning about it and maybe understanding, you know, how does mining work? Uh, and then also, what is the, you know, maybe this isn't just useless magical internet money. Maybe it's actually, maybe we should pay attention to the fact that right down the street at the at the Oslo Freedom Forum, they're talking about how this tool is like a, you know, human rights tool that we just tried to ban in our country or at least ban the mining of it. Uh, and so I, I, basically it was another kind of unique, unique experience because uh, I got to hear them share their stories with, with, you know, members of parliament and kind of explain, you know, that, you know, in their kind of privileged setting, that it just seems like this, you know, this investment, this speculation, however they want to look at it, but that for them, it means a lot more. What was your impression or what was the reaction from those people, like the politicians that you interacted with when they were perhaps got, saw Bitcoin and what this represented from another angle as a result of the, the human rights setting that it was presented in, uh, what was the reaction? I, I think they asked good questions. Uh, basically it was a handful of, of, um, uh, parliament members and then uh, some of their advisors. Uh, and so they were very open to learning. Um, these weren't the groups that had pushed for that ban. These are ones that right. um, you know, were, were generally on the, on the moderate uh, or right-leaning side of, of a, a country that's generally you know, more left-leaning than the United States, right? So um, these weren't the, the, I believe, you know, I, I'm not an expert on Norwegian parliament, but um, basically the ones that pushed it were from the far-left contingent, whereas these were from a, a bunch of other parties. And yeah, the general impression was just open-mindedness and and willing to listen. And I think Alex was smart because, you know, he brought mostly human rights people, but then he, he also brought um, a handful of people that can speak to the the mining side. So, you know, uh, Darren Feinstein, uh, Nick Carter, myself, uh, just, just people that have a little bit of background in, in, in that context to answer, you know, maybe why Bitcoin mining is not just the drain that they would view it as and how mm. it's it's the actual nuance is more is more useful so part of it was focusing on the human rights side and then also asking just the nuances of of you know what does mining mean for our grid you know is this a waste um and, and how does it work like that so i i think it was constructive yeah absolutely and i was gonna save some of that stuff till later but maybe we just break into it now because it's so uh you know it's so often the case with bitcoin that it on initial inquiry, it's, it turns out being kind of opposite to what you think it was initially, right? So, you know, first you thought it was for buying drugs on the internet and it turns out to be the most effective tool for 
human rights activists around the world and insulating yourself from authoritarian regimes. You thought it was something that was going to boil the oceans. Turns out it's probably going to accelerate, you know, our whatever energy transition the market determines is best and is probably going to be best for the environment long term. It actually ends up being pr- perhaps the primary most effective catalyst for that. And so, uh, you know, maybe you can just share, I know you have a lot of these conversations. I, I, I watched a ton of your interviews uh, in preparation for this, and I've been a fan of yours for a long time. So I've uh, heard a lot of your commentary on it that way also. But what has been your, uh, first of all, your own learning journey of coming into Bitcoin and why it was interesting to you in the first place? And then how have you encountered those kind of successive initial, maybe partial understandings, if not misunderstandings toward a fuller understanding? And how have you communicated that to people, you know, to your audience and people that you've been speaking to that maybe have held the opposing view? So I I think like a lot of people, it took me multiple interactions with it before I felt that I I understood it enough uh, to, you know, be bullish on it and have pretty high conviction on it. Uh, And so I, I, I encountered it back in you know, 2010, when I had, a, I had a friend that she could mine it on her computer. And from the beginning, I was never um, opposed to Bitcoin. I was never dismissive of it, but I, it didn't click enough that I really wanted to pursue it either. I was always kind of like neutral to positive on it. I was like, oh, that's neat. Uh, that's like a, a cool new invention. Um, I, you know, and, and then back then I associated because there was kind of the the people talking about it, a lot of them were kind of this libertarian type of focus. And I was like, oh, that's like the libertarian, like internet money that they're doing. Like, I don't know how, how successful that's going to be, but, you know, I root for them. It's kind of neat. <laughs> um, and, but, you know, when you see it just not go away for, for years and years, you see these huge spikes, you are like, okay, it's a bubble. And then it collapses and then it bounces back. And then it just kind of keeps grinding higher. You start to pay more and more attention to it. And there are multiple mm. times where I even thought like, maybe I should get a thousand dollars worth of this stuff. And I, I would run into some friction point. You know, the exchanges were, a lot of them were more sketchy looking back then. I, I had heard about Mt. Gox. Um, and so it's, you know, it's, it's always kind of intending to maybe look into it more and then never really getting around to it, being distracted by work and life. Um, but when it had that huge 2017 bull run, um, you know, from an investment analyst perspective, I had to start looking into it more deeply and writing about it because I had clients asking about it, uh, but, you know, Bitcoin and then also other digital assets, you know, Ethereum, what do, you know, what do you think about Bitcoin? What do you think of crypto? What do you think of Ethereum? What do you think of this? And so I, I actually, at that point, spent the time to really kind of dive into it. And for me, I think the biggest misconception or challenge that I had um, is about network effects and and dilution, right? So it's like, okay, so Bitcoin scares, but if anyone can make a new coin, you know, what's what's the stop, you know, 50 coins from each having 2% market share? Um, and what's to stop a better one from coming around? And so it, it took time to understand the network effects um, uh, about that uh, and kind of tying it to the history of how money spreads. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then two, for me, I think that the big catalyst was seeing the resolution of the block size war, right? So when I, when I started diving into it in 2017, there was the whole Bitcoin versus Bitcoin cash question. And so I, I, I vaguely understood, you know, the, the block size difference and what that means. Um, but I didn't have a high conviction on how that would turn out. And then so seeing that, you know, resolve in, a, in Bitcoin's favor and then going back and understanding, well, what were the specific nuances that led to this? And it basically, it gave me an appreciation for how immutable um, uh, or, or resistance to being changed Bitcoin is. Uh, and that, that increased the value proposition in my view. So it's really about this, that multiple interactions with it while staying open-minded. Um, 
the energy part in the very beginning was somewhat un- uninteresting to me in the sense that, you know, I was like, well, if it's valuable, if people were paying for it, um, then they're entitled to do that. And, uh, you know, it was a pretty small percentage of, of global energy output. So I always kind of disregarded those shocking headlines about, you know, using more energy than a small country. Um, I, I think where, because I already had a background in electrical engineering, um, I understood just generally speaking, the size uh, of how that works. So it wasn't something I put a lot of thought into, but it was only when I started to, uh, you know, read the works of Nick Carter and others where I, I saw that the it's not just the amount of energy it uses, it's, it's, it's the way that it uses energy. So the fact that it has a specific property of, you know, being able to go out into remote locations, being able to handle uh, downtime uh, and, and other kind of nuances basically makes it a buyer of stranded energy um, or otherwise unproductive energy. And so it, it was, you know, kind of in that later stage, that 2020, 2021 uh, type of phase where I started really kind of double down on that on that mining side, especially because you know everyone has their own background or their own skill sets, and I'm not an advanced programmer by any stretch. Um, but because I have that electrical background, um, I felt that educating people around how the mining works is something that I, I could try to contribute to. Um, and so I, my general focus is to emphasize one. You know, instead of shocking headlines, you know how how much energy are we actually talking about here, and how does it relate to the whole? Uh, so mm-hmm. I try to put that in context. Two, I try to clarify that it, you know the energy usage, like or that the amount spent on energy as a relative to market cap or relative to to transfer volume keeps going down because a lot of this is tied to the block subsidies that that are you know diminishing due to the having. So over time, as the system bootstraps itself, it becomes more efficient. And I try to emphasize that. And then last, I, I then dive into the other side of it, which is, you know, to the extent that we're expending ener- energy, um, you know, to, to see that it's mostly non-rival energy, that it's mostly sucking up energy that's, that's you know, not being used. And as part of that, I try to educate people that electricity is not fungible. It's not like we can just teleport electricity around to wherever it needs to be. There's there's loss associated with that and there's real world challenges. And I think that's that's something a lot of people miss. They assume that if energy it was not consumed by Bitcoin, that it could have gone to some other purpose. And I think they often miss that that, that energy often just gets wasted. Um, so I, I, it's really about size, efficiency, and then the nuances of, of how it works is what mm-hmm. I try to emphasize. Yeah. You know, you, you mentioned kind of the first pass to Bitcoin. And I think most people have a story, something like that, you know, a, a couple of touches before you get drawn in. And for me too, I mean, I was a gold bug, so I was already fairly sympathetic to the libertarian sort of uh, ideology. But it's funny you mentioned that because I think so many people kind of, you know, they see the libertarians or saw the libertarians doing something. It's like, oh, isn't that cute? You know, the libertarians always have their thing and it never really works out, but it's, you know, it's great for them to try and it's good to have it in the conversation, but, you know, I'm sure it's not going to amount to anything. And then, as you say, you keep watching and you realize that it, it is uh, growing and it seems to be succeeding and it seems to have some staying power. And then the more you watch it, I mean, you, you ultimately just get compelled to come in, mostly by your own self-interest, of course. And then you fall deeper down the rabbit hole and you realize that there's far more nuance and far more intrigue here than, you know, just another asset that you can make some money on. Um, and, and the energy component is one of those things. I mean, we, we've been covering it a lot on this podcast and... I think that's because it's a lot of people understand the monetary case for it, you know, like the the fact that there's 
a digital gold, as it were, that can't be inflated, especially in an era where we're on a global fiat currency standard. And I mean, especially over the last 18 months or 12 months, even where inflation has entered the public lexicon or awareness far more than it ever has, you know, and I think a lot of us were critical of central banking and and fiat currency prior to that. But now the whole world is like, wow, I just lost 10%, 15%, 20% of my purchasing power. And that's in developed markets to say nothing of, you know, developing in emerging markets where things have gone even further off the rails. So I think that that point has become more salient for a lot of people around the world. But those of us that have been in this for a while, the energy component of all this is becoming extremely compelling. You know, one of the reasons is because our energy, the climate change narrative that seem, you know, or discussion that's happening in the world today is very much about that, is about how much energy the world is using and what forms of it we are using and what are the effects of the energy that we're using. And I think a, a lot of us also would be fairly critical about how that dialogue is is going down in the world today. It's lacking the proper nuance. It's lacking the proper information. It's even in many cases, lacking the proper perspective. For example, like is your perspective one of promoting human flourishing or is it preservation of the natural world? Now I'm not saying I'm opposed to the latter, but I'm certainly more primarily for the former. And so what is the, how do we navigate that balance optimally? And it seems like uh, quite surprisingly, by virtue of how Bitcoin functions by virtue of its architecture, it's allowing for us to seemingly have quite a nice answer to that question that both serves the purpose of the more efficient allocation of resources through a more pristine monetary mechanism, let's say. So we're mitigating waste in that capacity, but we're also bringing the f- a free market to energy and also, as you say, unlocking energy resources that otherwise would have you know, not been unlocked or would have been waste. And so, um, you know, I kind of want to ask you just when did that penny drop for you? When did you realize that this was a phenomenon, not only on, you know, on a monetary and economic basis, but on a, I don't know, what would you call it? Like an industrial or energetic uh, scale as well, that this is a seemingly going to be a very impactful phenomenon. So I guess part of it came down to first being bullish on the asset because the larger the network gets, uh, that's one of the variables that goes into you know how big its energy scope is, right? So if it's a tiny network, um, then you know regardless of how it uses energy, it wouldn't be super relevant uh, in the global stage. So mm-hmm. I think step one was was appreciating the probability that it that it would increase in value significantly from the initial point I was assessing it at, and then two, the question becomes if it is going to get larger, uh, what does that mean? And there were really good pieces from, uh, I mentioned Nick Carter, but also Ross Stevens put out um, a good piece, um, I think it was back in 2020, uh, and just, just seeing the nuances of thinking through a new type of, ener- of demand source. So, you know, a lot of our demand sources are inflexible. Uh, and so kind of the, the, the electricity situation we have as a whole is that in general, people are trying to bring on more variable sources of electricity. And that can cause challenges because demand is not variable, uh, or at least a lot of demand isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have uh, an increasing situation where you have negative energy pricing, which sounds like a good thing, except it's, it's negative energy pricing because it's, it's, it's energy precisely when you don't want it. And then it's a lack of energy precisely when you want it. Um, and that's, that's one of the challenges facing us. And so seeing the emergence of a credible... Um, you know, flexible source of demand 
uh, and then kind of saying, okay, what what that's a new puzzle piece that we have to work with. And then what does it mean for the grid? And then you, you kind of go down that rabbit hole and you say, well, I mean, it, it basically improves the economics of variable supply, uh, which is which is kind of one of the biggest challenges and gives an alternative or at least something that can go along with battery storage, because that's, you know, various ways of storing energy are, are inefficient. And that, that's been one of the biggest challenges for uh, quote unquote renewable energy sources or, or variable energy sources is trying to make them less variable. And basically just seeing that there's a whole nother way to go about it. Um, and then further taking it out and saying, okay, well, it's, 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 it's something that can even bootstrap new supply. So when you, when you look into a lot of uh, developing countries, they often have a chicken and the egg problem when it comes to developing their electrical infrastructure. Uh, basically that, you know, if you want to bring a new type of power to, to the market, it requires a lot of money to get all those transmission lines and all that infrastructure to get it where it needs to go. And then there's not even necessarily a lot of demand yet because the demand hasn't been able to fill the supply. And so it's kind of the question, what comes first, supply or demand? Mm. And what Bitcoin mining can do is say, well, you know, before you build all, all the expensive infrastructure, if you just get if you get the supply working, you can start monetizing it. Uh, and then you can kind of you know, bootstrap and spread out from there. And so for me, it's been just thinking through all the little nuances of, of what that means if the industry stays pretty large. Um, so you have the combination of the, the network itself is growing, but then because the network's becoming more efficient, it's using less energy, you know, relative to its market cap or relative to its, its transfer volumes. And the question becomes, what is the fee market going to look like and all that? I think a lot of this question is still, um, you know, uh, hard to assess with any sort of high degree of confidence. But the implication is that if, if this persists as a pretty large energy, uh, a pretty large industry, uh, it just opens up so many different, you know, avenues of doing things and stabilizing the grid and soaking up things that would otherwise be um, wasted. And I still think we're super early in, in terms of bringing that to other parts of the world. I, I, I you know, I definitely look forward to hopefully the hash rate becoming more globally distributed because stranded energy uh, as a whole is mostly globally distributed. Um, and it's, it seems like every six months, there's like a whole nother use case that I had not thought of. Like, you know, uh, PRTI boils down like tires uh, mm. into their constituent part, which is, which is way better than just burning them. Uh, but the missing piece that makes that actually economical to do is that they can also convert some of that to energy and mine Bitcoin with it, uh, even if their local grid doesn't need a lot of electricity and is not willing to pay high prices for it. Um, then we see, you know, it, it's increasingly being used to to mop up, uh, you know, flared natural gas or or methane that is wasted on landfills, right? So it's it, it basically mm -hmm. can convert methane to to carbon dioxide more efficiently than flaring or more efficiently than just letting it leak into the atmosphere, and that that overall is is considered a net good. And so it just seems like when the technology is right, it's like you, you just keep finding more and more applications for it that you didn't even consider a year or two ago. Yeah. It really is a mind bender because, you know, what you're doing in the landfill one's a real mind bender. First of all, I didn't even know that landfills collected. I mean, I, I guess I knew that had you asked me, I would have said, sure, I guess, I guess there's some gas that's a byproduct of what's happening there. But I didn't know it was on the scale that it is, you know, and that they engineer them in such a way that in like a cellular sort of way, I think where there's like, there's different cells and they, uh, they like put in ways of extracting the methane that, that is generated from, from the dump. And then they, 
they burn it oftentimes and different, you know, dumps are more advanced than others. But to know that there's, there's such a large amount that you, you could actually economically capture it now that Bitcoin mining is, is available. Now, I think in even in some cities, they've integrated that into the, the grid in, in some capacity. But in most places, I think it's just flared if it's captured at all. And to think that you can just, you know, plop in a, a shipping container with a bunch of Bitcoin miners in it and, you know, you're off to the races turning literal, you know, not only waste energy, but waste energy that comes from waste into money, which is the most, you know, f- most saleable good into pure economic, op- economic optionality. So literal garbage into pure economic optionality that can be sent and used anywhere in the world for whatever purpose. I mean, it's just, it's kind of unbelievable. And I think part of the reason why people, I mean, again, the energy discussion that's happening in the world today is uh, very heated. And as a result of that, I think sometimes the nuance it's very difficult to get the nuance into the discussion. But one of the things I also think contributes to that is most people don't understand how energy generation or grids work. You know, I think most people just think, okay, like there's a coal or oil or natural gas or nuclear reactor somewhere that creates energy and that's how the city gets lit up. But, you know, as I've been going down this rabbit hole, I've been learning more about that. And uh, spoke with uh, Sean Connell from uh, Lancium recently on the podcast, and he's a wealth of knowledge for how all this stuff works as well. And, you know, I'm no expert, but suffice it to say that energy is kind of like a just-in-time delivery sort of product. And so the reason why you need these, uh, this ability to curtail or, and, and why something like Bitcoin that can be turned on and off in an instant is so valuable is because when energy demand increases it's far easier to redirect energy than to create more on the spot or it's more quick to do it. And so at the moment, you know, Sean was telling me that uh, steel mills are like the Rolls Royce of uh, managing grid demand, let's say, because, you know, they take a lot of energy and when grid demand goes up, they can shut down for a few hours to satisfy that peak demand without having to put, you know, energy generation into overdrive if it's even available. And, uh, but of course, you know, you turn off the lights at a steel mill for over five hours and things harden and it just, you know, it, you have to do work over again. And, uh, the fact that Bitcoin can come online now and it can suck up pretty much as much excess energy as you want it to, you won't always get the best price price for it, but it has the capacity to do that. And then if you are in a scenario where demand is extra high, that can be shut off and all those electrons basically can be redirected towards the grid so people can use some for lights and refrigerators and that kind of stuff. And it's been interesting to see how that's been developing in Texas because perhaps Texas and ERCOT is one of the more free market grids in the world. And it seems to be the case that as a result of that, and of course the abundant energy, wind, solar and oil and gas in Texas, a lot of miners are setting up there. And I have to think that the efficiencies that that's going to bring to the network, as well as the economics of it, you know, the income of all stakeholders in that market is going to get pressed pretty soon. You know, it's still kind of early days, but I, I think the rest of the world is going to wonder why that is going to want some of that efficiency and some of that, you know, gain. And, um, I just, it, it constantly amazes me that, 
this thing also, you know, we say Bitcoin fixes this, right? For so many things. And it's a bit of a trope and it's a bit overused. Um, but it really does seem to be the case that as at this point where we're confronting this global energy dialogue and to what to whatever extent you think we're confronting a catastrophe, and I'm, I'm probably on the side of it's that's been a bit overblown, those concerns. But still, we have this thing in Bitcoin that seems to be, I mean, can you think of a, a mechanism in the world today that's more effective at and sustainably rectifying, you know, the energy circumstance that we're being confronted with? I think it's one of the best tools we have. Um, and part of it comes down to the technical nuances, but then also the incentives. So there are a lot of people that, that do whataboutism and they say, well, I mean, couldn't, couldn't XYZ be used for that standard energy? It's like, well, you know, it coulda, shoulda, woulda, but it's not. And it's it's in large part because for one reason or another, it's, it's not economic. Whereas mm-hmm. doing this with Bitcoin miners due to the mobility and due to how you know, kind of modular that setup is, um, that they're able to do it. And, they, and that importantly, they're able to do it economically, which is what makes a difference between thinking about doing it and having a, a cool idea versus actually executing it in practice. And, you know, when you look at the state of journalism around this, it, it's, it's challenging because most journalists uh, that report on this are not, are not um, uh, technically well uh, uh, studied on grid mm-hmm. dynamics and, uh, just the kind of the nuances of energy in general. And so they generally go with the simplistic view that, you know, energy usage is bad, therefore, uh, and, you know, also that it's unnecessary and therefore, you know, they, they'll provoke, promote other coins or they'll just call it a waste. And I, I am getting at least um, optimistic that more and more people are starting to see those nuances. I think, I think all those years of, of people putting out educational resources on it are paying off. And, and so, for example, I've been... Um, optimistic on. I've been uh, noticing uh, over the past, I think, six months in particular, there's been kind of this rise of like progressive Bitcoiners, uh, mm-hmm. which is uh, I've described as like a dark horse because, you know, it's it's the Bitcoin space is generally viewed as more libertarian or conservative. Um, but then there's an increasing contingent of, of people that would identify more on the left that, you know, would, would you know, either they're human rights activists, right? So you have some people in the in the HRF that are like that, or we have people that are uh, more on the environmental side, and they're saying, wait a second, this is maybe this is not the enemy of of our political view that that you know a lot of people make it out to be. Maybe mm. there's aspects for us too in this from their perspective, right? So maybe Bitcoin's for everyone, right? And so uh, and I think that's important because they then are able to counter some of that fud in a way that that they can you know they might have a better shot of being able to speak to those types of critics than people from the libertarian or the right side. Um, and so I, I generally think that it is starting to happen that, you know, generally utilities are, you know, people that study this for a living and do this for a living are starting to see the actual benefits. And then mm-hmm. also I think that at least in terms of informed understanding, it is getting out there in, in multiple different groups that would otherwise have almost nothing in common are just starting to see the self-evident kind of truth there about how the nuances of this work and how you don't want to ignore a good tool if you have one. And, and like mm-hmm. you said, I mean, it's hard to think of a better tool um, or at least a more open-ended tool. We don't even fully know all the things we can use it for uh, in terms of its relation with energy, uh, but that clearly there's a lot of use case there. Yeah, totally. Um, you mentioned that the reward, the ratio between the market cap of Bitcoin and the re- reward the mining reward is diminishing, right? Yes. So, I mean, mining is basically a way to accumulate Bitcoin at a discount to spot, 
right? And you capture that arbitrage and that's the profit for, for mining. If Bitcoin were to become, I mean, many of us hope it becomes, you know, dominant base layer global money, let's say. Um, but even if it just becomes uh, a highly sought after reserve asset, you know, and uh, with a market cap in the tens of trillions of dollars, would that, you know, with that in mind, that that is what miners are doing, they're capturing an arbitrage between the cost of production and, and the spot price. If the market cap of Bitcoin was $50 trillion, let's say, or $100 trillion, uh, would not, you know, a fraction, like a close to that amount of energy be devoted to mining because basically they're just acquiring Bitcoin at a 10, 20, 30, 40, 50% discount, depending of course on, on how quickly the, the price is moving in relation to the economics of Bitcoin mining and ASIC production and that kind of stuff. I mean, how do you, what is the reason why you see this diminishing reward in relation to the market cap of Bitcoin? And do you think that will continue to be the case or, you know, how do you see that dynamic playing out? So we've seen it for over 10 years now, ever since Bitcoin had a price and this became measurable. So, uh, you know, in my in my Bitcoin energy article, for example, I have, I have tables uh, that show this both for market capitalization and for uh, adjusted volumes. Um, and th the general reason is that the majority right now, uh, the majority of the Bitcoin miner revenue is block subsidy rather than fees. Um, and I assume most people, most, most audience people know this, but miners have those two main sources of revenue. There's the fees and then there's the, the, the new coins they're able to generate uh, per new block. And because of the halving dynamic, because basically the, the inflation rate, the supply inflation rate of the protocol uh, you know, gets cut in half every four years, you generally see less and less minor revenue as a percentage of, of network value, either in terms of volume or, or market cap, and people can debate on which, which one's a more accurate measure for that, that statistic. Um, but eventually, you'd, you'd expect it to stabilize at some lowish number. And of course, the, it, it, there's a pretty big range for what lowish means, because it's, it in part comes down to how the network is used. Uh, and so you have the dynamic of block size is not really increasing. Uh, there have been some soft forks and efficiency improvements to basically effectively increase the block size, but those are kind of one-time uh, benefit gains uh, that can't just be repeated. And so there's been more efficient block space available, uh, but that's it's finite. And so if usage of the blockchain or demand for usage of the blockchain goes up 5x or 10x, uh, or more in terms of the you know the number of people in the world that are using it, uh, and then the amount of total capital that is in, in uh, both holding it and that wants to transact or wants to settle with it, you'd expect a pretty robust fee market to develop. You know, it's mm -hmm. not hard to imagine that you know a base layer Bitcoin transaction could be worth a pretty high fee because you know much like say Fedwire, uh, the average transaction size in that hypothetical future would be pretty big. Um, and so it'd still be a, it'd still be a improvement over the current banking system in terms of, of fee wastage, uh, but it would still be a pretty robust fee market. So my expectation is that if adoption continues to be robust um, and, and and to some degree exponential, um, that eventually mining should you know even though it'll go down as a percentage of market cap and volumes, it'll eventually kind of stabilize at some low level. And I've done analysis where I say, okay, what if it stabilizes at, say, 0.5% of market cap or 0.25% of market cap or 0.1% of market cap? And then I do the same thing for volume numbers. 
Um, and I also look at the history of, say, market capitalization to volumes to measure how the velocity is changing over time. Generally, the network has uh, slightly reduced its its estimated velocity over time, but that could change if we start to see more medium of, of exchange usage rather than hodling behavior, right? So there's always these kind of shifts to watch out for. So I'm, I'm pretty optimistic on the size of the Bitcoin mining industry, uh, but it's something I continue to monitor because you have to navigate that transition from you know, mostly relying on block subsidies to mostly relying on fees. I, I also think that over time, if you get lower, lower um, volatility due to more widespread usage um, and you have more integration with the grid, basically a lot of these inefficiencies we've just been talking about get, get more fully realized and used by you know, professionals running you know, the grids and, and other types of energy sources, um, you can probably expect it to be considered more of a low-risk business uh, rather than a high-risk business. And so they, they'd be willing to pay more, you know, they, they'd be able to you know, basically have a longer payback period um, for their capital. So you actually still have a pretty sufficient large amount of, of hardware involved and the, uh, the, the cost to attack the network is still very, very high because I think the average probably machine cost is going to in- increase uh, relative to the, the revenue source that it brings. As a primarily because the revenue source is going to be going down, not machine prices necessarily going up. Yes. Well, yeah, the way I would phrase it, I think, is that you know, right now, when someone buys a Bitcoin miner, uh, you know, there's a payback period that is is pretty short, uh, and I think a lot of that is because you're, I mean, you're taking on a lot of volatility and uncertainty when you mm-hmm. do that, um, and so you have, you know, you have risks to your cost side, then you have complete risks to your revenue side. Uh, we saw, you know, a lot of miners were in trouble when when Bitcoin, you know, dropped sixty, seventy percent. Um, mm-hmm. In a, in a hypothetical world where there's less volatility and then there's more co-integration with the grid so that your effective energy cost is, is zero or negative in, in some cases, um, that you can afford to have longer payback periods. Uh, and so that they, you basically would have a pretty high amount of hash rate uh, relative to the rewards on the system. Uh, but that it would be considered like this, you know, a lower risk type of revenue stream compared to now where it's, it's considered a pretty high risk revenue stream. Right. It seems right now, like up to this point in Bitcoin's history, that in most periods, that arbitrage that we referred to before has been pretty tasty, right? So there's, there's, there's been quite a lot of profit to be made in Bitcoin mining. If I'm hearing you correctly, for all the dynamics that will continue to emerge in the future, do you think it's likely the case that Bitcoin, well, I mean, I think it's what you just said, that Bitcoin mining will be less profitable, perhaps. And I think that's because the rewards will be less, there'll be more competition, uh, maybe as a result of the impact on grid efficiency that Bitcoin mining has, the kind of payoff from the grid will be reduced over time as, as that integration becomes more efficient. And so, because right now, Bitcoin mining is kind of both a buyer of first resort at times and a buyer of last resort at times, depending on the highly volatile energy dynamics, again, that we're experiencing in the last 12 months, more so than perhaps any other time in in our lifetimes. Um, But do you think that's where the industry goes, that Bitcoin mining becomes kind of almost exclusively a buyer of last resort as Bitcoin's own price volatility irons out as energy grids and energy distribution efficiency improves across the board that these arbitrage opportunities are diminished and 
and, and Bitcoin mining just becomes that kind of like base buyer globally for energy and then higher order uses of energy get stacked on top of it? I think that's the general direction it's going in because with more competition uh, means basically only the most efficient uh, uh, you know, miners can survive in an increasingly uh, globally competitive environment. And so I think that that rewards miners that have essentially reduced their energy costs to near zero or in, in some cases negative. And the way to do that is being, you know, basically the, they're, they're co-integrated into the grid. And so uh, I think we're going to see more and more kind of merger between, you know, the miners and energy producers themselves, because it's, it's a way for them to monetize their energy when demand is fluctuating. Um, and so the good news is that, I mean, not good news, but because there's always a mismatch to some degree between supply and demand. These are these are two things that there's there's always there's there's so many pockets of of stranded energy out there um, that being a being a buyer of last resort still means you're buying a lot um, because there's you know there's there's always different types of energy being produced that we can't use. But yeah, I, I think in general it's going to gravitate towards those energy sources that are essentially free because they're being produced in the wrong place or the wrong time. Uh, relative to when people need them, and that it, it, it this will increasingly, I think, just fill in the holes uh, mm-hmm. of and and when you look at it globally, I mean, there's a lot of holes to fill, and so there, yeah. there's plenty of plenty of capacity for a flexible source of demand. Yeah, I agree, and this is kind of like a Jetsons, like way off in the future sort of question, but do you, I mean, is it conceivable that now that we have a mechanism for capturing waste or surplus energy, where I don't think one really existed before, really. Um, do you think, can you see a future where this becomes integrated on a, on a, com- or not commercial, but like on a individual level? Like people, I know there's some hobbyists around the world today that, you know, mine Bitcoin in their garage or wherever to contribute to the decentralization of the network or to acquire, you know, um, you know, Bitcoin without going through an exchange or anything like that. Uh, but do you see a time where, this technology is integrated on a home energy level whereby, you know, a, a home generates heat, it generates electricity. It's a, it, it's part of the distribution network of electricity. Do you think because now there's a mechanism for scooping up all this waste energy that as a, almost as a civilization or as a market will be more and more tuned to paying attention to the ability to capture unused energy because now we have a means of bringing it to market to monetizing it. So I'm cautiously optimistic on that, on that trend. Uh, it's certainly, I would like to, because um, I, all else being equal, I want to see more decentralization of, of mining uh, because that increases censorship resistance of the whole network. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a really big piece of that that's happening is, is the work that Square and some others are doing to make the whole um, supply chain more modular, right? So instead of just selling you these big machines, if they can sell you just the chip, or just you know uh, uh, you know kind of the the, the various subparts of it, um, you can then tailor those into to home type products better than they currently are. Uh, you can you can put them into smaller form factors. You can you can integrate them more with other things. And I think another trend that we're going to see more and more of is is using the waste heat uh, for a productive purpose uh, yeah. because a lot of the electricity that's used in mining gets gets uh, turned into heat, and rather than that being a, a downside. 
um, obviously a lot of us have have need for heat in various ways. Mm-hmm. You can you can use it for uh, you know, growing things. You can use it for drying wood. You can use it for heating your home. You can use it for heating your water. Uh, and so I think I think the the keys to increasing the probability that it spreads out like that are one is is making the you know all the the parts themselves more modular to 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 you know make use of these efficiencies. And then yeah, two basically just more and more kind of convenient ways to to use that heat uh, rather yeah. than that whole being a, a waste. Yeah. Um, so I, I I do think that's a realistic future. Um, even though it's a hyper-competitive field, uh, mm-hmm. because some people just, you know, even if it's break-even, there are a lot, a lot of people that would want to do it anyway. Yeah. Again, the the efficiency of a uninflatable, pristine money combined with the ability to capture and use energy with this degree of efficiency is like it's so hard to project out into the future. You know how this develops because those are two very, very consequential changes to make. And as you said, I mean, there's hobbyists that you see on Twitter now that are either heating their hot tub with, you know, the heat from miners or, uh, heating a big greenhouse, you know, to grow vegetables. Many people have, uh, jacked it into their HVAC, you know, and they're using it to, to heat their house, you know, the miners in their garage. And then the, the, the heat is heating the house. It's, it's so cool to see. And it's such early days that I, I have to imagine that's going to, there's going to be a market for, doing that more easily on a consumer sort of level. Um, you mentioned the, the public miners, um, and that's kind of an interesting topic for me because, you know, one, it's a centralization, right? These, these, the public miners have access to public capital, which means they're able to, you know, accumulate or, or set up big operations um, as well as sustain themselves potentially in down markets where, um, smaller miners that don't have access to capital to the same degree are unable to, you know, persist, uh, in down markets. Now, the flip side of that is they could irresponsibly use access to to capital and debt and leverage. And that could mean that they're, they put themselves in a more precarious situation, but what is your take on the relatively recent over the last two or three years, emergence of big public mining operations with a ton of hash power, and the degree to which that represents either threat or opportunity to uh, the end that is a resilient Bitcoin, let's say. So I think it's a little bit of both. It's basically a risk to monitor, um, but it's also an opportunity to explore. Um, and part of making that work is, as you pointed out, that that you know providing capital, right? So you know, prior to a few years ago, there were not specialized entities really that could that could you know finance this cheaply. Uh, but we've seen the emergence of uh, people in finance that understand Bitcoin and then are willing to kind of you know uh, create lending uh, products and and do various you know the types of capital arrangements uh, to increase the capital efficiency of miners. Uh, so that's that's all good for the industry. Uh, it basically makes it more efficient. And then also you know if it's going to have a, a useful impact on the grid, um, you know a lot of that can come in the form of public companies. Uh, you know they basically have have more leeway, I think, or more kind of weight behind them. When they make some of these arrangements or, or partnerships, um, and and so I think that there is some favorability there. The risk, obviously, is the probability of centralization or censorship, uh, the, the network being censored, right? So, for example, if the United States had over fifty percent of the hash rate, which they currently don't, uh, as, as far as most estimates are go, but if they did, uh, and if if the Treasury Department said that you know you have to sanction these addresses. Um, you know, that could be a problem for network censorship. And the way that I've described 
Bitcoin's decentralization, because people often debate is, is decentralization a spectrum or is it not? Um, and I think the answer is a little bit of both because, and the analogy that I use is a rocket getting into orbit, right? So there's, uh, on one hand, it's a Boolean outcome. Either you get into orbit or you, or you don't get high enough and you fall back down. But once you're in orbit, there is a spectrum of, of how, you know, how high of an orbit are you in? And that will influence how long it takes to eventually fall back down. Um, and I would view Bitcoin similarly in the sense that it's, it's, you know, it, it got into orbit in terms of being sufficiently decentralized. Um, uh, basically it's more decentralized than not. It, it kind of passed that threshold. It passed multiple hard tests to kind of test its censorship resistance, but there still are some areas of improvements to make it even more decentralized over time. Kind of like how if a satellite's in orbit, you can always get it into a higher orbit. Uh, that, that would be, you know, uh, uh, basically increase the probability that it stays in orbit. And so with Bitcoin, I think that the challenges left are, you know, basically making mining more accessible um, and making the supply chain more diverse so that, that there's more companies making chips, more founders making chips, uh, that, the, that the chips are more modular so that they're not always packaged with the machines, but that they can be put into other types of machines. Um, and so I, I do think that wherever possible, you, you know, I, I think that it's valuable work that there are people doing to try to make that whole thing more decentralized because, you know, there is a risk. I think it's a non-zero risk that you could have censorship on the network for periods of time. Um, if you were to get too much hash rate in one, uh, you know, set of countries that, that then tries to do some sort of censorship attack. And of course, large, large publicly traded companies are the, the most known and therefore the quickest to have to comply with those sort of things. Whereas off-grid miners and kind of shadow miners, they have more, you know, leeway and flexibility in terms of maintaining censorship resistance of the network. Uh, basically, as, as the more enforcement points you have, it's, it's more costly to enforce, uh, you know, censoring type of actions. Uh, whereas if, if you only have, you know, a handful of, of you know, throats to choke, it, it's pretty easy then to go after those. And, right. you know, the, 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 the one advantage, I think, of the Bitcoin, uh, of, of proof of work in general, is that stranded energy is is kind of anti economy of scale. So, so a lot of aspects of mining benefit from economy of scale, right? So, but but the one area that doesn't is the fact that you know that if you're too big, it, it's harder for you to make use of these you know smaller amounts of stranded energy. And mm -hmm. so there is kind of kind of a limit, I think, of of how much benefit you get from growing. It's not like this inevitable network effect that kind of you know should consolidate things towards one or two giant miners. And instead, it, it's kind of this inherently distributed system but there's always ways to i think improve it or find bottlenecks that that are preventing it from being even more decentralized than it already is yeah totally and i, I love the projects out there um we've had bob burnett on the show from barefoot and you know there's so many as you say there's so many pockets of like half a megawatt to two megawatt energy resources all over the world where you put a shipping container with asics and connect it to blockstream satellite no but no one in the world knows you even exist you know and so I feel like that definitely bodes well for uh, decentralizing hash power. But do you think in the public market domain that as a result of, you know, maybe irresponsible use of debt and leverage or whatever the machinations that are occurring in the market, do you think there's going to be consolidation um, amongst the public miners in the next few years? I wouldn't be surprised. Um, I, I, I've been kind of torn on that because, like I said, I, you know, there are some limits on how useful it is to be big beyond a certain point. 
um, in the mining space, um, but also you know the bigger and more diversified you know their their footprint is, the less exposed they are to you know facility issues, shutdowns, uh, things like that. And so, and then the more diversified they are, generally the better you know, the, the higher credit worthiness they're assessed to be by securities markets and banks and things like that. So it lowers their cost of capital. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I do think we'll see some consolidation towards um, either larger hands or, or more knowledgeable hands. Um, but my expectation is that there's a kind of a ceiling on, on how much can happen there just because of that dynamic of these, these pretty small pockets uh, of energy that really don't benefit from you know, being a, being a gigantic corporation. So it's something I watch, um, but it's not something I have a super high conviction view on. Right. Kind of related to that point, you know, recently we saw the, um, tornado cash debacle, let's say, um, and there's been a lot of rumblings about, you know, regulation and the degree and severity of crackdown by whatever government and whatever jurisdiction. And, you know, one of the risks as, as, one of the reasons why central centralizing hash power is a risk is because ultimately that is just a phone call away, right? Like if, if there's an issue, if, if, if government wants to stop that, it's a phone call away. Now I'm sure there's lobbyists on the side of those large companies and you know, every both sides are going to be doing what they can to avoid such an absolute outcome. But, you know, again, you, you look at this a lot and you, you, very much, you know, keep your ear to the ground in the industry. Does it seem to you like more favorable or less favorable regulatory approach is, is coming into the space? And if it's less, I mean, I'm assuming that, well, how does that impact your view of, of, you know, the public miners and the centralizing effect in, and the centralized um, effect that that has on hash power in the network? So I think the tornado cash sanctions, um, you know, all else being equal, I think increased risk of, of censorship, basically that, you know, a proof of work system um, uh, is more resilient than a proof of stake system to that type of attack. Uh, a small node system is more resilient to that type of attack. Um, and distributed mining is more resilient to that type of, of attack than if, if mining was consolidated. Um, I, I do think that there are significant risks of U.S. of large U.S. miners being forced to censor transactions. Um, there's, you know, there, there's technology that allows that, uh, and there's been kind of trial balloons uh, done with that. Uh, you know, a, a year ago, Marathon, for example, uh, you know, filtered out some transactions. Um, but there's kind of like two very different levels of of how extreme that can get. So, for example, if it was just the case that North American miners are say filtering transactions. Um, but they're still able to build on any other block, um, then the overall censorship threat is not too high because you can always get your transaction into a, a, another block, one that's generated from outside uh, of that jurisdiction. Um, the, the kind of the, the big risk, the one that's actually an attack on the network would be some sort of rule that says, not only do you have to have your block be free of any sort of like, you know, sanctioned entities addresses, but you also can't even build on a block uh, that, that has, uh, you know, a, a, an off limits transaction. And that goes one of two ways, depending on if that jurisdiction has more or less than, than half the network, because if they have less, less than half the network, it's essentially a ban on mining in that jurisdiction because they're going to have trouble finding blocks to build on. Uh, whereas 
if they're more than half the network, um, then they've then they've effectively censored the network at least for a period of time. Because if they're you know they're they're not even letting other types of blocks uh, become part of the longest chain. Um, now that's where incentives get into play because you would then expect the fees associated with block transactions to increase pretty significantly. And that should entice miners to to you know change jurisdictions to whatever extent is possible to capture that arbitrage. And so it, it's not just the challenge of censoring it for a period of time; it, it becomes an ongoing, you know, in a, a, a challenge of maintaining that level of censorship. And so I, I generally view the risk of that second thing pretty low because right now there's no country that has over fifty percent of hash rates, um, and there's not a lot of at least from what I'm seeing willingness to to tell miners that they have to you know worry about other people's blocks. Uh, but I do think that the lighter type of censorship could happen where certain jurisdictions uh, put limits on what their miners can put in their blocks, which is not the end of, it's not great, uh, but at least it's not the end of the world as it pertains to, to censorship resistance network-wide. Mm. Yeah, this, this issue is kind of a part of a larger issue that extends beyond just uh, mining for Bitcoin. And basically it's like, well... Bitcoin is, in some respects, incompatible with the existing system. You know, the existing fiat system is a highly controlled and highly regulated system. And Bitcoin emerged as a response to that, as a, as a solution to that. And I think a lot of people around the world today, maybe they don't fully appreciate that. And so, you know, they're trying to integrate one with the other but there are certain respects in which they're antithetical. And I, I don't think they can be reconciled, right? You can either have financial privacy, absolutely, or you can't. And that's either a right that you believe people should have or they shouldn't have. You can, act, you can either transact freely with whomever you want or you can't. And that's a right that you think people should have or shouldn't have. And I feel like potentially we're moving you know, as it's often called out of the honeymoon period in Bitcoin, where it kind of emerged from zero, right on the cypherpunk mailing list and people didn't think it would work. And now it's become a going concern and it's become large enough for the exist, the legacy financial system, let's say, to pay attention to it. And it seems like those, those differences are beginning to cause friction. And I wonder if they continue to do so as we move forward. So what are your thoughts on the kind of the compatibility or lack thereof of these two ultimately competing systems and these attempts to integrate the two, how, how you see that playing out? So I think in that sense, they're mostly not compatible and that, that this is probably going to be an ongoing multi-year um, challenge uh, between basically regulators that would prefer their financial privacy to not exist um, and a lot of people that, that want it to exist and want to uh, make it easier and, and, and bring it to more people. And so, you know, if, if you look at, say, pre-Bitcoin, you know, it's relatively easy for a government to financial, uh, you know, censor uh, financial transactions or surveil transactions. Uh, you know, there's parts of the cash market that they obviously have no insight into. And that's, you know, that that's the most private, uh, you know, method that people have. But any sort of money that wants to go around long distances pretty much has to go through the banking system. And so they can enforce it on a pretty small number of, of, of choke points that, that have to comply, banks. Whereas once you've invented Bitcoin, once you've invented peer-to-peer -peer 
money transfer for a pretty low cost. Uh, you know, it's, it's very accessible to, to run your own node, for example, uh, for, for large portions of the world, at least not everyone, but at least it's, it, it's something that's, that's reasonably accessible on a pretty wide scale. That essentially increases the enforcement points of things like sanctions uh, far more dramatically. Um, and that makes it much more costly to enforce that type of, of surveillance or that type of control over the network. Um, and, you know, people put up with things when it's more indirect, right? So, for example, we put up with quite a lot of, of surveillance of our funds and control of our funds because it's kind of just it's this background part of, of the banking system. And we're not the ones that have to really worry about it. Um, but when it starts to be implied on a consumer level, I think that that's where you get some pushback. People are like, what, what do you mean you're telling me I can't I can't send money to that address or I can't, uh, you know, increase the privacy of, of my coins on the network? Um, and so I think that that's where you're going to get more frictions between rising use of, of Bitcoin and as you saw with Tornado Cash, other, other, you know, it happens in other networks too, uh, where people want that to get privacy and regulators don't. And so I think, you know, early on people were like, you know, they're just going to ban Bitcoin. And I think, you know, most sophisticated types of regulators are, are not interested in say, quote unquote, banning Bitcoin, but they are interested in trying to control Bitcoin, trying to make it less private, less fungible. Uh, less um, uh, self-custodied. Um, they'd rather have it be more custodied, more controlled, more surveilled. Uh, and I think that that's, that's going to be one of the big battles uh, that will be fought across multiple jurisdictions um, and that I, is not going away, in my view, anytime soon. Um, because, you know, especially when you bring in central bank digital currencies and things like that, you know, the banking system is only going in one direction, which is less and less private and more and more control. And, um, you know, Bitcoin uh, and, you know, kind of the networks built on top of it, uh, like Lightning or the, the potential for federated Chalmian Mint, there's, you know, privacy techniques should keep improving over time. And those those become, I think, inevitable um, kind of war fronts that are going to happen between regulators and people. And it's going to be different on a country by country basis. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And you bring up an interesting point, uh, or you made me think of something as you were speaking. And, and well, first it's like, you know, people will say they're open to innovation and they want to be supportive of Bitcoin, but in a particular framework, but it's like, well, what framework are you talking about? Well, we want to make sure that we can, you know, track transactions and know who's transacting and censor transactions if we need to and all this other stuff. And it's like, it sounds like you're saying you want to make Bitcoin into the existing system that it was developed in order to uh, ameliorate, circumvent, improve, counteract, counterbalance in some way, you know? So it's, again, we're, we bump up against the, the kind of two antithetical philosophies on money not being compatible, but people continuing to try to bring them together in some way. Um, but the other thing you made me think of is like before Bitcoin, and I guess you could, you could counter this by saying the gold bugs kind of were this contingent that held held up this side of the argument, but you don't realize the ways in which you're constricted when there's no other options or no other easy options that you're aware of. And I'll use a very dramatic example, but I think it proves the point. Like in North Korea, for example, people, and I don't know much about North Korea other than, you know, the propaganda images that I'm sure we've all seen, but by and large, it seems like people are at least able to be, to maintain a certain contentness by virtue of the fact that they think what they have there in relation to what's available in the rest of the world is better than it actually is. You know, they're told that things are great and it's wonderful and all this kind of stuff. 
And so they don't, they don't, there's not a alternative to contrast their experience with to properly inform them how they should be judging their experience. And I think something is similar with that. There's a similar dynamic with the legacy financial system and with Bitcoin. I mean, as you said, we, we all just became, we were born into this financial system and we, we became accustomed to so many different components of it. Well, I give the bank my money and they quote unquote custody it. Of course, they lend it out in fractional reserve and all the other stuff, but we're not really informed about that. We just give it to them and they give us, you know, at this point, basically nothing for it. But back in the day, maybe two or 3% a year. Uh, and they are the ones in charge of the security. We don't have to worry about it. And sure, you know, them and Visa and the Fed get to ultimately see where our transactions are going and they can trace where we go around the world. But I'm not a bad person and this is just the way it is. So I guess this is how it's supposed to be. And then Bitcoin emerges on the scene and says, well, you're capable of having more financial privacy if you would like it. You're capable of having more financial control if you would like it. You're capable of having a more direct relationship with your money if you would like it and not be disintermediated for whatever reason. And, you know, I think this is part of the dynamic that's unfolding in this current stage of this legacy fiat system, whereby, as I mentioned to earlier, where inflation has become more part of the public lexicon over the last 12 months. I think also, uh, you know, custody has started to become a consideration. We, we look at what happened in Canada. And if you, you know, uh, supported a group of people that were protesting for their freedom, it very well could have been the case that you lost access to your bank account, your brokerage account, your credit card, all that stuff, just by virtue of sending them five bucks and saying, hey guys, I think you guys are doing something good, nonviolent, I, I want to support it. And I think that was a wake-up call for at least a, a decent chunk of the population. And of course, for those activists that we were referring to earlier all around the world, they already know that, you know, not your keys, not your coins, basically, not your U.S. cash dollars in your hand, then it ain't yours. Because in many places in the world, I mean, I think in Argentina and many places in Africa, there's like, I think in Nigeria, it's like $20 a month or something that you can transact in in US dollars. And in Argentina, it might be $100. But there's these serious limitations imposed on you for how you can transact with what is supposed to be your own money. And so long-winded way of just saying that now that there's an alternative that, well, that offers an alternative and one that's far more free in terms of how you might interact with your own money, with the proceeds of your own labor, I think it's casting a pretty dark shadow on the existing system, on the legacy system. And I can see them, I think that's going to probably accelerate whatever outcome is at the end of this journey, because now that there's an option, I mean, in any case, when people are in a difficult situation, if you give them options, they're going to, over time, choose the better of the two. And so in terms of regulations and stuff like that, I mean, I think I know the answer already, and you've already kind of touched on it, but do you think this era, this next decade, we're going to continue encountering these, you know, bumping up against one system attempt to maintain control and the other one, every, you know, each successive day being able to offer more control to the individual rather than to the system or the institutions within it? So I, I think so. And, you know, it's interesting because it, the technology 
better technology kind of forces um, regulators that if if they try to push back on it, they have to be more transparent with their actions. So so prior um, you know things they would do around surveillance are things that that a consumer might not even know about. For example, the Bank Secrecy Act basically means that if you deposit a large amount of cash, your bank has to kind of spy on you and report it to the government. Um, and that's something that you don't have to know about. And if you hear about it, you're like, well, you know, it's the banks. Um, whereas it becomes a lot more uh, interesting when you now have the technology to do it yourself and you can have your own coins and you can mix them to kind of, you know, have, have a reasonable degree of privacy. And if they come in and say, no, it's illegal for you to do that. And then that's, that's almost like a, like the, the veil's been removed mm -hmm. and you're like, well, what do you mean? I can't do that with my money. Why can't I pay a fee to have my, my coins mixed? And, you know, a lot of people have this view that, you know, if they're not a bad person, they don't need that much privacy. Um, and I think the way to counter that view is to, a couple ways. One is to point globally, right? So we, we can point out that approximately half the world lives in, in countries that are classified as authoritarian or semi-authoritarian. Um, and so, for example, going back to that that part where we went to, to Norway's parliament, you know, some of the activists there were saying that, you know, they're from Nigeria and they, they protested police violence and then they had their bank accounts frozen, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, this is commonplace uh, throughout the world. Um, and it's not even necessarily about Sometimes it's about disagreeing with the law, but other times it's basically forcing lawmakers to actually go through with the laws, basically to not do extrajudicial, um, you know, seizing of funds and things like that, and basically say that no, if you want this money, you have to go through the legal, you know, you have to you have to say that I committed a crime rather than just that we don't like what you're doing, um, and so it, it basically it, it kind of brings together things that have already been happening for decades, but that makes them more transparent. And I think another angle to focus on is, you know, people think about privacy, they often think about privacy from the government, but it's also privacy from, you know, big unethical corporations that just want to mm. monetize it uh, and, and don't really care about, you know, the user, right? So, for example, if you withdraw coins from an exchange, um, you know, that exchange can then keep track of what you're doing with your funds, um, and, you know, we, we see there's so many hacks out there and there's so much kind of, you know, just, just ways to use our data against us that a lot of people want that privacy. And, and, it, and it's kind of interesting seeing how the language battle is developing. So when the Treasury, for example, sanctioned Tornado Cash, you know, they, they described it as having laundered $7 billion. And it's like, no, no, that's the volume. Some percentage of that is, sure, is laundering. But the majority percentage of it was 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 other uses, more normal uses of privacy, mm -hmm. um, and you, and you kind of see the same thing with with Bitcoin mixers, where you know they kind of disclassify any sort of privacy as laundering, uh, and that's kind of a, a a word battle, right? That that mm -hmm. you know people that want privacy are laundering, whereas laundering is a very you know it's a different purpose than that, um, yeah. and so I think that that's that framing is going to be important, and I think when it comes to the narrative battle. Um, obviously different groups are going to have different aspects that can appeal to them. So if, if depending on the country they live in, or if they have a more libertarian or conservative angle, then the, the, you know, privacy from your government might be something to stress. Whereas if someone is more trusting of their government and more kind of accepting of their government and thinks their government has the best wishes, uh, you know, in mind, then I think the angle comes, well, what about people in other countries that don't have that privilege? And then two, what about privacy from corporations and other entities that would spy on you? And so I think yeah. it's, we're kind of re-exploring the debate from decades ago about whether or not people should, should you know, be able to have privacy if they want it.
Yeah. And what's ironic, somewhat sad, uh, interesting is that at least as far as the American constitution is concerned, you know, a lot of what Bitcoin helps to enforce or what it represents is fairly consistent with what is in that foundational document. It's just not super consistent with what's happened to institutions over the intervening, you know, 200 and some odd years after that document was written. But, you know, many of the the things like, you know, that are enshrined in that constitution are, are pretty much enshrined, enshrined in Bitcoin as well. And it, so it should be a very, you know, a straight line between saying, yeah, you know, absolutely, these things are good and we shouldn't intervene to impede the, you know, the use of them in any way. But of course, we're far down uh, a different road right now in the world and, you know, with the fiat currency, global fiat currency system. And so that's not the case. There, there, there are these um, impediments. Um, and, you know, as you're saying, one of the things that pops into my mind is that if, if part of the thesis is people becoming their own banks, right? And by that, I just mean you're the one that custodies and controls your money. And that's a big part of what this is all about. Uh, that means that you're now a target for, so it's not just the corporations harvesting your personal information, but you have a, a strong incentive to maximize your own privacy because you're a target for any bad guy now, right? So prior it was the bank, you know, the bank to make sure it has a big fancy vault and armed guards and all the rest of it, and you can rest easy. But if you're taking that degree of independence or sovereignty now by custodying your own wealth, then you have now put somewhat of a target on your back and it behooves one to minimize the degree that people are aware that you're doing so, you know, and, and there is a, that's an extremely strong case in my opinion for being able to use these privacy tools. And as you say, I mean, mixing services are being lumped into laundering, right? And laundering has this connotation of, well, you've done something wrong and you're trying to, you know, get rid of the, the evidence. The, the alternative is I haven't done anything wrong. I'm trying to make sure that I'm not a target and I can maintain my privacy. The challenge is, is that those actions are basically indistinguishable, which is why I think we've gone down a road of, let me put it this way. I think we're going to have to, as a result of this technology, go back to punishing behavior rather than punishing the steps that lead up to bad behavior. And that's probably going to be uncomfortable for a little bit of time in society because we're coming out of, because we haven't operated that way for a while, let's say. But I think that's what we're going to inevitably have to return to because these tools are going to make it almost impossible to fight pre-crime, to to put it that way, you know, and we're going to have to say like, look, you can do whatever you want with your money, but the moment that you break, the, the moment you, <laughs> and this is tricky, right? Because we may have to recapitulate what laws are and what harm means, you know, vis-a-vis another person and what's, what we should criminalize. And then those are going to be challenging discussions, I guess. But I guess the point just being that I think this technology is going to make us have to go back to punishing behavior because the, the predicates of certain behaviors are going to be almost impossible to, to track and control as a result of this technology. I agree. And it also, one of the other potential conflicts is that the way that many countries have structured their tax system, mm. uh, that that tax system does not work well with widespread privacy of transactions. Right. Because if you tax something obvious like property, 
like house, for example, um, you know, that's, that's, it's pretty hard to hide. I mean, you know, if you're in a, a, a local community, you know, the government is, is able to kind of know what is this property worth, who owns it, and then they can get their dues for it. And that even in a pretty private world, uh, you know, that's, that's enforceable. Whereas if you try to tax income, which is increasingly, you know, that that's that's where a lot of taxes is derived from, uh, that that relies on the government being able to accurately prove how much income someone had, so that they can ensure that people are paying the 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 lawful amount. Uh, and so, in some ways, the way we've structured tax is kind of based on the assumption of no privacy, or at least right. no privacy to the government. Um, and so, if you have better and better privacy tools, or if they're open source, and if if code is speech. And you, if you if you use those privacy tools, it becomes kind of an interesting conflict when the government says, "No, no, wait a second, we can't let you use that. We have to be able to surveil you." Mm. That that kind of makes it, it kind of brings brings that conflict closer. And it, it's another example of, you know, something's abstracted or it always was a certain way. You kind of forget about it, but once it's, it's put up in your face, and the government's saying, "No, literally, we need to spy on you, so we're not letting you use this." You're, then you kind of go back down the rabbit hole. Like, why, why do you have to spy on me? Why do you have to do it like that? Why do you, why is the thing you're asking me to do need so, so much surveillance? Um, so I think that that's going to be part of the conflict and that's part of the reason they have an attack on privacy. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think to our, the prior conversation, this is why things are going to probably uh, intensify over the next decade because I mean, a government exists as a result of their capacity to tax the citizenry. And if we're saying that something's emerging, a, a money is emerging that's far more free and, and far more efficient and you know has the capacity to serve the role as money far better than anything we've ever had before, and there's a lot of good to be derived from that, the flip side is that for existing institutions that rely on the capacity to tax, or if you're a bit more of an extremist, you might say the capacity to steal from people, involuntarily take from people, then that Im- the emergence of that innovation is not a positive to you. And you're probably going to try to resist it as much as possible. And the analog to this, of course, is the, the cash economy that's existed for a long time. You know, we all probably have had experiences where, you know, you're at a garage sale or you're at a, lo- a local business or something like that. And if you pay cash, you don't have to pay tax, something like that, right? Because it's cash. There's no, there's no trace of it. You know, no, no, none, nobody's the wiser. Nobody knows the transaction took place and it was just a consenting transaction. You both got what you wanted and that's it. And, you know, as a side note, that word cash has been for some such a point of contention um, because it was part of, you know, in the, in the title of the Bitcoin white paper and some have used it in you know, early days to suggest that you know, Bitcoin should primarily be used for cash-like small transactions. I, I think you've even, uh, I think I've seen you place emphasis on this before as well. Whereas, you know, perhaps it's more appropriate to place the emphasis on cash, not on buying a coffee, but on basically having a transaction that only the participants are aware of the details of. And perhaps that is a, perhaps that's the defining quality of cash in terms of its benefit rather than the ability to scale transactions. Yeah, that's that's something I touched on in my lightning article because there's different, you know, there's different thought processes for how to scale a blockchain or what the priorities of a of a blockchain money should be, um, and and some of it gets hung up around the debate of what is cash. You know, mm. what is an e cash system trying to optimize for? 
And so, you know, the, the argument from, you know, the, say the big blockers or, you know, people that, that just want more throughput, even if it costs, you know, if, if it sacrificed decentralization to do so, their argument is generally that in order for something to be cash, it means using it frequently on a regular basis uh, for your payments. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, the, the, I think the more, more nuanced view of cash is, is, you know, or kind of aiming at what was Satoshi trying to solve by, you know, giving us the digital cash was not necessarily something you use for every single transaction, uh, at least in that, the, you know, the maximally censorship resistant way, but it's there when you need it for certain things, right? And so, you know, cash in our everyday life is not necessarily the most convenient way to pay, right? That's, that's why many of us use debit cards, credit cards, uh, apps, you know, they're, 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 often a lot more efficient than, than paying mm. with, you know, paper and coins. Um, and obviously when you're, when you're, you know, operating online, you have to, um, uh, but whereas what this introduces is, you know, that, that kind of return to cash when you want it, maybe you don't use cash for every transaction, but maybe there are certain types of transactions where you want to use cash for one reason or another. And obviously that those, those reasons could vary significantly based on what jurisdiction you're in. Um, and, and what exactly you're, you know, you're trying to accomplish. And so I think that, you know, I think that emphasizing kind of privacy as a human right is going to be kind of an important, um, topic this decade. And it, it's funny because in, you know, in, in like the UN documents, I mean, privacy is kind of identified as a human right. It, it's, it's, you know, but it, it's something that's not really enforced anywhere. Um, and so I think that normalization of privacy again is probably a big theme i think you know the the bigger narrative in bitcoin has been the inflation side which is super important um mm. but i i think that you know privacy is going to become a a pretty big theme as well and is that and i don't really think you can remove privacy from censorship uh resistance you know to a certain degree they're kind of intertwined concepts absolutely and you know again this is why perhaps bitcoin initially appealed to the libertarian types because if you move the chess pieces forward and you say, well, if everyone has complete and total discretionary privacy over their wealth, well, what happens to the institutions of government and banking and all else that are dependent upon violating that privacy or not even having it in the first place? And as you said, you know, a moment ago, well, how does, you know, how does the government know how much to tax you if they're not aware of the extent of your wealth? And, you know, there's, this has existed in various forms prior to Bitcoin, you know, offshore tax havens and banks and all that kind of stuff. But now I think Obama even was the one to quote that it's like an offshore bank in your pocket. I think that's how he, um, he characterized Bitcoin. And he probably wasn't, you know, saying that in a positive light. But have you, have you game planned this out? Have you like moved those chess pieces forward and said, okay, well, if we're moving into if we now have, if everyone now has available something that's going to allow them that degree of privacy and it's not viable, you know, and there's steps that needs to be taken, of course, there's a learning curve, but let's say that's available. What does happen to the institution of government and the institutions that we rely on today? I mean, to my mind, and it's, of course, it's something that I often think about and discuss, it's quite transformative, but, you know, I know you think about all this stuff a lot. I'd, I'd love to get your take on how you see those, you know, that playing out over the course of decades. Yeah, it's something I've considered. And you touched on on the main point, I think, which is we we can be instructed by learning from how older tax systems worked. Because in 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 you know in in you know older times, a lot of transactions were just 
people exchanging bare assets with each other privately. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the tax systems that were in place during that time, you know, had to be built in such a way that they didn't need to figure out someone's income down to the dollar, right? I mean, income taxes were not generally a large part, if at all, of a tax yeah. base. And instead, you, you'd have to tax at other things where you naturally have more transparency, like on property or like, um, uh, like you know, import and export taxes, you know, basically goods, you know, physical goods coming through a port of entry, you have more control over um, large, large purchases, like, you know, basically taxing liquor, taxing cars, whatever the case may be, taxing these, these, these more observable things. Uh, and so to the extent that private money becomes more prevalent and impossible to stop or push back on a, if it hits a certain critical mass, then it, I think it forces governments to reassess some of the ways they do taxes it could potentially affect the overall amount of taxation they can do, but it also it directs the type of taxes that they have to emphasize more and other ones that they have to de-emphasize. Mm-hmm. Um, basically things that are, like I said, this, the, the more obvious and the more inherently transparent ones that even private money does not obfuscate like property. Um, and with Bitcoin, you know, I, privacy's o- over the past year become a bigger theme that I focused on. Um, I, I think the, Canadian trucker protests, uh, I think, reasserted the importance of privacy to a lot of people. Um, and, you know, it's something that I, 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 de- I definitely want to see more built out because one of the, you know, there's no perfect platonic money, right? There's, we're always limited by technology. And, you know, historically, one of, the, one of the challenges with Bitcoin, one of the imperfections of Bitcoin is that it's not perfectly private. Um, and some people consider that a feature. Some people consider that a bug. Uh, but it's something that I think over time, you know, privacy is pointing in the right direction, but it's something I, I, I think still needs more investment and it needs more buy-in. Uh, and I think Matt O'Dell describes it well, where like, you know, if, and, and a lot of other privacy advocates have pointed this out, that if, if a small percentage of people are interested in privacy, they become kind of targets because anyone mm-hmm. who's, you know, pursuing privacy, it's pretty easy to identify that they're pursuing privacy, even if even if their privacy is working enough that you can't tell exactly what they're doing. The mere mm-hmm. fact that they're actively pursuing privacy kind of puts them on like a watch list, you know, that, that, that there's more, you're more likely to draw attention to yourself. Whereas if, if everyone is doing privacy, then, you know, you basically increase your effective privacy because you're you're one of everyone else doing privacy rather than one, you know, if 1% of the population is, is doing privacy practices. So I think it comes down to making them easy to use and having privacy be a more normal concept among people. I think it's going to actually take probably quite a while because I think that, you know, there's, there's still a lot of technical details to work out to make various parts of the Bitcoin stack more private. And then mm-hmm. also, I think, you know, I think there's still a widespread belief among people that they don't need privacy if they're a good person. Yeah, I, I agree with all that. And I, I think it will ultimately be abstracted and built into many of the, the different tools we use to interact with Bitcoin. But it's still so, I mean, I always have to remind myself we're on year 13 here for for Bitcoin, right? It's extremely early. And so, you know, it, I think some of this might be a matter of, uh, well, keeping, you know, keeping the relevant, focusing on the relevant thing. And if we really are moving into an, a period now where despite, and I, you know, will say this to the death, Bitcoin being representative of principles and values that I think are good and should be upheld and have been espoused in the various docu- founding documents that we alluded to already, despite the fact that that's being uh, cast in a negative light, I think it's important that we continue to 
develop, use, and engage, as you say, those tools so that it's more available and it's easier. And when, you know, should it, uh, uh, should that friction that we've been discussing, the, the two systems bumping up against each other, uh, get more intense or severe, uh, then people can more easily, you know, opt into the option that they think is, is right. And um, I think that's the path we're on, you know, and the last two years, I think have just been uh, a bit of a wake up call to people to say, you know, this it's time to focus on this area of things uh, because it's becoming increasingly important and relevant. Um, and just a, a question about the income tax. First of all, was income tax instituted in the U.S. like early 1900s? And was it not meant to be a temporary tax? Yeah, so I don't, it was early 1900s and it originally was a very small percentage and it was mostly the wealthy where it was easier to track uh, their income. It it was not something that was generally on on this kind of like, you know, everybody pays it type of thing. It was Mm -hmm. more selective. Uh, You get the JP Morgans of the world, like the actual guy to pay right. some of his income, yeah, things like that. Um, and, I, you know, I think the early usages of it was associated with the war, but uh, I forget the exact years it was implemented, but then it expanded from there. And I think part of that expansion is is along with the fact that more and more economic activity transferred from bare assets to the banking system, and it became more transparent for the government to, to monitor. And you had, you know, more more people getting these regular paychecks with each paycheck reported to the government. And then therefore everyone's income became much easier to track and therefore it was easy to expand that to everyone else and at a higher and basically rely on the, the bulk of taxes now coming from that income. So it is right. it is a pretty recent phenomenon and it is it's you know it's a large part due to technical reasons that, that basically they needed that transparency in order to make that work. Right. So if, if wealth is easier to tax, it's going to be increasingly taxed. If it's harder to tax, it'll probably be decreasingly taxed. And, you know, maybe that's the, the era we're moving into now. You know, you mentioned in, uh, I'm not, I think it was your piece about what is money anyway, but, you know, in relation to the, the human rights side of things, I think you mentioned that uh, since we've entered into the fiat era, there's been a higher number as a percentage of jurisdictions or countries around the world that are authoritarian, let's say. And Gladstein has also, you know, shed a lot of light on this because it, it's something that complete, as far as I can tell, completely escapes the attention of most people. The relationship between the ability to, and let's say surreptitiously tax, not even directly tax, but let's say via inflation, right? Being able to print more monetary units and as a result, stealing, you know, siphoning away purchasing power from money holders, the relationship between that capacity and the ability to fund war or authoritarian regimes, I think has been one that most people are not aware of the connection. And you and Gladstein of others have really started to elucidate that connection. And, uh, you know, I just, when did, when did that connection become clear to you? And, you know, what are your thoughts on on that connection and how to communicate it to to more people. So I think that that was a connection I came across pretty early because even before I identified Bitcoin as being a solution, you know, a lot of my research was studying the problems of the current monetary system. You know, the 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 feedback loops, the weird bottlenecks, kind of the you know the the, the technological shortcomings mm-hmm. of of how the whole global financial system is constructed. Um, and one of the downsides is that, you know, if you have fiat currencies and you're able to, um, 
you know, obfuscate a, a large portion of, of government spending through currency dilution rather than taxes, uh, it basically allows for less uh, popular types of spending to exist. And so you can imagine a situation where if all if all government expenditure had to be taxed, you know, like for example, if you wanted to go do a war, you had to do a war tax, right? That that war would get a lot less popular uh, very quickly. Whereas yeah. if you if you're just kind of like if the cost of it is completely detached, uh, as far as people can tell, and instead it's kind of like you know it's 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 leaking out in their currency over time, but they can't put one to one. They can't look at a paycheck and say, okay, this is the percentage that's going to that war on some other continent. Um, and so what you know, essentially a hard money system, what it does is it basically enforces transparency. It doesn't necessarily say you have to tax less or you have to tax, you know, a certain amount, but it says, you know, it, it's harder to do taxes that that, that, that particular public. And of course, there's all these cultural differences about how, you know, people view the role of government, but it basically, no matter what jurisdiction you're in, it makes that process more transparent and in, in my view, more honest so that there's actually like an understanding between politicians and their, and their constituents about, you know, why are we taxing this money and then what are we spending it towards uh, rather than, than having ways to obfuscate it. And I, I do think it's, it's not widely understood that authoritarianism is generally on the rise globally. Um, it's, it's not been during the whole fiat currency era, but it's been during the last 20 years or so. Um, and you generally had a, a process where, you know, f- for, for decades prior to that, we were generally pointing in the opposite direction. Basically, the world was becoming more free. You had, you know, just more and more interconnection, more globalization. You had, uh, uh, you know, widespread use of phones and internet, things like that. You had the fall of the Soviet Union. You had the opening up of China. Those were, you know, generally spreading uh, more classically liberal type of values. Um, but then at some point that started to turn, you started to see Russia getting more and more authoritarian. You started to see China getting more and more authoritarian, uh, even the freedom scores. Uh, like, so you look at freedom house, for example, it's a U.S. nonprofit that, that, you know, measures and advocates, you know, human freedom and democracy around the world. And they apply scores to different countries. And you even see that even in relatively free developed markets, the freedom scores are, are diminishing over time. An example in the United States would be like the Patriot Act, for example. Mm. Um, and you, you generally have, it, and also what we saw with the, with the say, the Canadian protests. Um, and so there's, there's generally that trend towards more and more surveillance, more and more control, more and more uh, things that are, you know, kind of put into that authoritarian camp. And, and for many countries, it's a spectrum, whereas other ones, it's, it's more absolute. But I, I do think it's something that, people need to be more aware of, uh, especially as we transition into a world where, you know, big data and I, and AI can give, you know, that level of authoritarianism even more power. Uh, we see, for example, in China that the integration of surveillance with big data uh, and basically just algorithms to, to kind of identify things, it almost brings us to like a minority report type of world, you know, maybe yeah. not, not, not to that extreme degree, but that, that kind of direction, which is concerning. Um, and so I think that that's, it's going to be a thing to watch. It, it's something that I, I think more people have to be aware of. And there's, there's starting to be some people in the Bitcoin space that are bringing up that talking point. For example, the, the Bitcoin Policy Institute has, you know, they've been pointing out that, you know, the United States, for example, has, has correctly, I think, viewed it in their interest to spread internet usage worldwide. Um, whereas if, you know, if you're an authoritarian country, that can be a threat to you. Whereas if you're a more open country, generally having 
people having more internet access around the world is it should favor you. So it's, it's generally been seen as in America's interest for more people in the world to have access to the internet. And so there are people at the Bitcoin Policy Institute, for example, that argues the same is true for Bitcoin, that having censorship resistant money um, is something that is is shouldn't be uh, considered a big threat to freer countries, uh, but it's a more of a threat towards authoritarian countries. Uh, and I think that's generally when you look at countries that ban it. I mean, it's usually the ones that are more and more authoritarian. Uh, that that you know they're they're willing to throw down that transparency and say, yeah, we're authoritarian. We don't want our people to be able to do this. Whereas countries that that identify, you know, their their political structures identify as more free. You know, they they've been a lot less quick to clamp down um, on on things like Bitcoin. Yeah, and I guess you know, as as the world becomes more digital, as software continues to eat the world, and it, probably in the initial stages of that transition, uh, people are just less vigilant about what that entails in terms of their privacy and their freedom. You know, and so it almost is. It, it seems natural that opportunistic authoritarians and authoritarianism is definitely on a scale, but let's just say wherever you fall on that scale, if you have that type of a mindset, and even importantly, I think a lot of what we might both identify as authoritarianism in the world today, you know, the, the imposition of uh, certain do's or don'ts on people all around the world, oftentimes the people doing that don't consider themselves as authoritarianism or as authoritarians, you know, they, they think they're simply carrying out a policy that's in the public good or in the best interests of those people that they're being imposed on. Now, very important ideological and philosophical distinctions between being a type of person that allows himself to do that and not, but we'll probably, you know, we might have to save that one for another time, but just to say that that's kind of how it percolates out because it's not, it's not recognized for, for what it is, but especially in the landscape of this transition to increasingly digital worlds and, you know, our, our lives being so integrated with, with uh, digital realms, I think in the early stages of that, we just didn't know how to engage it. And so corporations and governments have cast this broad net and has allowed them to have a far greater degree of control over our lives as a result of you know, them basically being ahead in the race in the early days of this transition. And I think privacy technologies of various kinds and decentralized open source protocols of various kinds, be they monetary communication or otherwise, are emerging now in response to that. And again, I think Bitcoin is probably, by virtue of the fact that it's in the money domain of, of that, that collection of solutions, is probably the most important and is allowing people to take back some of that uh, sovereignty and privacy that they didn't even know they gave up, but they're starting to wake up to them, realize, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, I never, I never signed up to this. I never agreed to this, but it just happened because I, you know, I availed of the conveniences that the transition to, you know, digital life provided me without too much consideration prior to doing so. Yeah. Cryptography in general is, is one of the most asymmetric technologies people have you know, mm. for, for anything really, but especially for privacy. So whether you apply it to encrypting your information or, or uh, using it for money, in the case of Bitcoin, you know, I, I view it as that asymmetric te technology towards, you know, humanitarian type of, of goals, because mm. a lot of types of, of 
technologies can, you know, empower the state. Like I mentioned before, things like AI, big data, surveillance technologies, those are things that uh, enable a smaller group of people to control a larger group of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's generally, you know, anti-humanitarian technology, uh, uh, you know, kind of at least the tendency of it. Whereas cryptography, because it's cheap and because the cost of attacking it is so much higher than the cost of, of deploying it, um, is something that is, is one of the, I think the few, uh, you know, really potent tools in the arsenal to kind of push back against that trend. And it is, it is amazing how rapidly uh, it snuck up on us, right? I mean, so you have, you know, it started with the banking system in general over decades, kind of that reduction in privacy. And then as we've, as we've become so digital, you know, we're surrounded by microphones and cameras all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them, you know, are, we, we think of like a, a camera on the street, but it's also, you know, we bring them into our homes. We, you know, we carry them around with us at all times. We have them, you know, facing out of our doorbell. We have, you know, people will bring a, you know, a, a, you know, a tool from a large corporation into their home for convenience that hears what they say and, and responds to their actions. Like, you know, like Jarvis, for example, from Iron Man, you know, everyone wants yeah, their yeah. AI assistant, but if that AI assistant is tied into the cloud and tied into corporate data centers, that's all a gigantic spying device on you inside your own home. Mm-hmm. And it can be increasingly, you know, when we feel safe and we feel like our, our government has our best interest in mind, you know, people are more tolerant of that sort of thing. Um, but I think even in there, even in that case, the the number of kind of corporations using our data against us, and then even if they're trying to use the data appropriately, the the, the, the sheer frequency of hacks is is just astounding. And mm-hmm. so I think that, you know, it, it's something that we're not, you know, our instincts are not necessarily tailored to understanding the threat very well. There's some, there's some threats that we're very good at identifying the the, the, the risk level of. Mm-hmm. Like if we see a, a bear, for example, we, we, you know, we have, we have like millions of years of history to right, right. know exactly what the, what the problem is here. You don't even have you know, a kid that, that never saw a bear before would be terrified if they just find themselves next to a bear. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas, you know, like surveillance and anti-privacy is something that we're not necessarily super equipped you know, if, it, if it's really blatant, you know, people have a natural instinct where they don't want to be watched, for example. But especially if, if, if we can detach that enough and it's just like little little devices we don't even see just surveilling us or, or if it becomes normal for all of our transactions to be visible to corporations and governments, it's something that I think people have not, you know, done enough threat assessment on. And I think that's the Human Rights Foundation has been smart because they, you know, I think there are a lot of organizations that promote freedom and they they've done a better job of most of, of pointing out that financial freedom is a, is a big percentage of that. Um, and, and I think that, you know, it'd be, it'd be good for other types of organizations to make that connection as well. Absolutely. Like I said, I think financial freedom is the first one you want to secure, not only because it's the most important because money is how you move yourself through the world, but also because you regaining and taking back your financial freedom also serves to inhibit the forces that are against you in this context, because you're kind of disempowering them by defunding them to a certain degree. Um, and I, I agree. I mean, it's a, it's a funny way to put it, but yeah, we've had millions of years to adapt to a threat in the, that we, we see, you know, leaves blowing in the, in the forest, or we see, we hear an, a weird sound and like, we're so adapted to, to recognize that, but how adapted are we to realize the threat of an, of an algorithm that, we, we don't even see in plain text. It just shows up as 
images or streams or what have you. And it's inducing us to think certain things, to act a certain way. I mean, there's been a lot of great documentaries and stuff on this lately. Um, and it begs the question, I mean, do you own your own mind? Are you fully in charge of what you think is real and the ideology that you are orienting your life by? And I, you know, to be a little critical, I would say largely around the world today, that answer is no for a lot of people, at least in part, you know, certainly people own their own minds to a certain degree, but I think everyone would concede that they're being influenced in, in subconscious ways. And I think, again, we're waking up to the danger of that. And I think one of the, as we take back our financial sovereignty, we're also going to take back sovereignty over our minds and over our data and behavior. And, you know, just to not be full-blown anti-innovation and technology here, I want Amazon to show me the things that it thinks I'm going to want to buy the most because I want my life to be more convenient and more comfortable and more exciting in certain ways. But I want to be the one to determine which of the of my data, which of my preferences they're getting, and maybe even the one that's compensated for it. Not, you know, whatever data acquisition technology ultimately gets my data, takes of it as much as they want, and then sells it to Amazon for a fee. I want that to be me, but I still may want the service of, you know, the algorithm determining, hey, you know, you need a new t-shirt today. It's been 178 days since you bought one. And, you know, here's your notice. And it, maybe that increases the probability of me purchasing it whatever degree. And, you know, so I'm not, it's not about being anti-technology because you're not going to stop that tide anyways. It's, it's about recognizing that we've, you know, we've kind of gone headlong into this technological transition or maybe backwards into it without being fully conscious of the risks. And hopefully now we're coming into an era led by perhaps the awarenesses that are being generated by Bitcoin that we need to be more cognizant and aware of all the different ways where we've relinquished those things that are most important to us, to the various institutions and, and constituents and stakeholders in this emerging world. Yeah, it used to be decades ago that you know, where we got our information from was a, a, the big risk in that regard. That if, there, you know, if there's only a handful of, of news companies, or in some cases right. there's state-run news, then there's a rather small amount of players that are able to influence what you think because they can craft the information that gets to you. And of course, there are ways of going around that. You can read books, you can read alternative resources, but but generally, uh, you know, it, it takes a lot of frictions to do that. And the good thing about the internet and all these communication technologies, they've they've democratized the ability for you know smaller source of information to get out there for people to exchange information more readily with each other, find find communities uh, that they can be a part of that they'd have trouble finding in their own say small town, for example. They, they you know they can connect people that are spread apart. But then the way that they've kind of still maintain some degree of control over that system is through a different channel which is which is surveillance that they you know they they they've lost something in terms of the ability to you know centrally give us information but they've gained the ability to understand us more at a at a more fine control level and then use that to more subtly uh, through algorithms and things like that affect our behavior, usually for, mm -hmm. usually for commercial purposes, uh, but can also obviously be used to influence public opinion and things like that. Um, like you saw, for example, Russians were skilled at using Facebook to, you know, to, to kind of em emphasize polarization. And they, they would do it cynically. They'd go to two groups that 
totally dif- you know disagree with each other. They go to some progressive group, they just go to some conservative group, and the, the main point was just to stir up polarization and, and decrease uh, kind of social stability. And so mm-hmm. it's something that I think we have to be increasingly aware of, um, both in terms of how it, how it affects us financially, but then also how it affects us socially. Yeah, totally agree. You know, so we've got about 14 minutes left. So I'm going to segue into a, a bit of a macro discussion here. Um, but one of the things that, one of my questions is, um, how long can, well, what is your assessment of how long a system with this degree of inefficiencies, let's say, I mean, let's use a recent example. So it seems like the Biden administration is going to, um, what's the word, like do a debt jubilee for student loans, right? Um, I don't know how much it's going to cost. I'm sure in the tens of billions, if not more. And, you know, as a result of having a money printer in the basement, as a result of this fiat currency system, as you said, with war, like if that had to be done by selling bonds to the public, to all the people that were, you know, that paid off their loans and that have been earning money and saving money and say, hey, will you subsidize all these people that took out loans that were too big for what they expected to earn for their whatever degree, liberal arts or otherwise? Are you willing to subsidize that by buying these government bonds? Most people would say, uh, no, <laughs> like definitely not. But as a result of the monetary system we have, that can just be done with a press of button, a press of a button and nobody has any say in the matter. And, you know, it often gets, of course, the language used is, is meant to obfuscate what's really happening here. But what's happening is just the taxpayers are being dumped on once again, you know, and whatever the spending is, whatever you feel about, you know, sending money to Iraq, Afghanistan, the war in Ukraine, or relieving student loans, the punchline is always the taxpayers are footing the bill, whether they know it or not. And they certainly don't have a choice. And so not only is that extremely unfair in my estimation, but it also is a perversion of the ability of markets to efficiently and or certainly maximally or optimally function in terms of uh, coordinating coordinating scarce resources to maximally meet the wants and needs of people that are signaling those wants and needs through the currency in a market. Now there's a couple, you know, uh, and the other thing to add on there, of course, is that when a currency is so open to manipulation and, and supply increases, how much fidelity does it lose in terms of being able to signal those wants and needs throughout a market? I don't know if you want to tackle that one on this, but my, my long-winded question is just, how long can this persist? How long can this degree of, of centralized intervention and misallocation and therefore destruction of capital persist as it is functioning today? So I, th- I think the, the biggest Achilles heel to the system is when you have a combination of high debt, but then also you have commodity shortages uh, and kind of real world constraints that, that cause inflationary pressures. Because for the past, you know, the, the system as we currently know, it's only been around for about five decades, uh, you know, from the early 70s to the present. That's how the global financial system has been structured. Uh, and, you know, obviously before then there was a different structure. Before then there was a different structure. There's different, you know, eras. The current one is about 50 years old. And, you know, for much of that, time they could offset 
you know, inflationary money supply growth with various disinflationary levers. So as as the world kind of opened up and became more connected, globalization, that was a very disinflationary force. Basically, you had this excess supply of labor, let's take China, for example, and by incorporating them into the, the globally interconnected economy, that's a pretty disinflationary force because you, you brought in a lot of new supply online. And so we've had these various ways to kind of mask how much inflation is happening. Right, so if 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 you know productivity increases are two percent a year, so let's say you know you you generally have negative two percent inflation. If you then have five percent monetary inflation, and you end up getting about three percent price inflation, basically that that offset is, is making inflation seem less egregious. In addition, because debt levels are pretty low, real interest rates were generally positive, so people could earn. You know, interest on their savings account, on their treasuries, you know, other other kind of these safe fiat assets that is, you know, roughly in line with or higher than that rate of inflation. So even though you were, you were getting debased, you were at least making it up in terms of quantity. You had you had more dollars, uh, even if each dollar was worth a little bit less every year. And where that system starts to break down is when you keep building up leverage in the system because you can, because for the reason you know the incentives we've discussed, that it's easier to fund things when you can just kind of have your central bank buy the bonds if needed, things like that. Um, so as we've gotten a lot of debt in the system, you know, the past, you know, call it 15 years, have been in a commodity bear market. We, we, we built up a lot of uh, new supply. And then as you had a, a slowdown in, in, say, Chinese growth, and you had, you know, just various things kind of slow, slow demand, and you still had a ton of excess supply, we've been in this kind of 10 to 15 year period of, of, you know, plenty of slack in commodity markets. So even then, when you when you're expanding the money supply quickly, it's it's still being offset by the fact that you know commodities are not just going straight up. And I think that now we've kind of burned through a lot of that excess supply in a lot of markets. And when we look at over the next ten to fifteen years, I think now we're encountering a system that it's paying negative real yields, and we don't have some of those big disinflationary levers we had before. So we don't, you know. China's, you know, already running it at very high capacity uh, in terms of supplying the rest of the world with goods. There's not like another gigantic pool of labor uh, to bring on. Now, there's 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 parts of the world that can be connected over time, and that that, that process can still play out. But I think we already got a lot of the low hanging fruit. Um, and then when you look at the same thing with the commodity markets, and so the short answer, I, I think that this that the current system as structured is going to run into increasing frictions over the next ten to fifteen years. I think we've seen that emerge over the past two years. And you know it won't be a straight line, but I think it's going to be a generally more inflationary type of world, and one where interest rates are not offsetting that to the degree that they did decades ago because of how much debt's in the system. And so I think that 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 process is already underway of of the financial system kind of working for fewer and fewer people, and, and more and more people starting to recognize that. Even though I don't think it's going to you know be totally different next year. I don't think it's going to be totally different the year after that. But I think when we look out five years, 10 years, 15 years, um, I, I do think that the system's kind of in, in gradual breakdown mode. And then there's always these events that are hard to predict. Like, so for example, when, when Russia attacked Ukraine and then we, we sanctioned their, you know, part of their reserves, that can have a, a nonlinear effect over time on different countries' reserve practices that might not have been predictable, you know, two weeks before that war happened. And then that can change timelines by by years potentially. If you had a certain view on what would happen with reserve practices, everyone had to go and reassess their view and their expected timeline once that happened, because that's a new variable that is you know went from theoretical to actually happening. And then that kind of enters the discussion. So, 
yeah, I, I think we're already underway on the system kind of showing a lot of its 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 downsides. And it's just now it's a it's a multi year process of that, you know, not being corrected anytime soon. The part of the discussion, at least in Bitcoin land, often it's you know it's almost certainly over oversimplified, but it goes something like there's too much debt. They're going to have to fire up the money printers again real soon. And then, you know, asset prices explode again. Um, do you think that's, I mean, there's certainly some truth to that, but do you, what kind of nuance would you add to, to that assessment? And, you know, and we just heard Powell today, actually, you know, and I think his remarks, I don't know if you saw them, but I, I think they'd probably be characterized as rather hawkish. You know, they were, he was fairly adamant that they're going to stick with this uh, tightening approach for a while until they see inflation meaningfully come down. Now, we all know that they have limits to how much they can tighten. And, you know, as you just said, you, you expect inflation to kind of be fairly volatile over the next decade. But, you know, if, if we're running with this thesis that, you know, the money printing is kind of the problem and the abuses of that system and all the institutions that have emerged around it, uh, are ultimately detrimental to the survival of the system. And of course, detrimental to probably the, the individual as well. Uh, do you think it's like, is that the only option is, is, you know, restarting the printers at some point in the near future and increasing the wealth divide and the, the, the distribution of wealth until whether it's social problems or whether it's something else that just is, is the final straw. So I think that the way they've structured their system, uh, being so focused on credit, is what puts them into the box uh, where they end up getting kind of forced to print. Um, and so, for example, if we look at Japan, which is one of the more extreme examples, you know, they have 250% uh, public debt to GDP, and so they're unable to tolerate uh, any sort of you know positive yields. Um, because the the interest expense becomes such a large percentage of of you know tax revenues, you kind of enter mm. a fiscal spiral, and so they're forced to step in and suppress those yields by being able to to buy as many bonds as needed with printed money to to cap those yields. So that's kind of an extreme end. If you look at the United States, we have a little bit more flexibility in the sense that our our public debt to GDP is not quite as high, um, and you know we have other levers we can pull, um, but it becomes monitoring. The health of those levers, right? So, for example, if there's a lot of foreign pur purchases of treasuries, that extends the ability of the Fed to tighten. Um, whereas, if there's not a lot of uh, foreign demand for treasuries, then the question becomes, well, who buys all the treasury issuance, right? Because mm -hmm. there's, you know, there's expected to be trillion-dollar deficits pretty much as, as far as the eye can see, and the question becomes, who's the, who's the marginal buyer of those? And so, the the things I watch for the the Fed's ability to maintain some degree of tightness would be the health of the treasury market, right? Who are buyers and sellers? What is liquidity like? Uh, what are yields doing? I also look at the credit market uh, for signs of acute distress uh, and less so at the stock market. Um, but in general, you know, their constraint is that if they tighten and they slow down the economy and they strengthen the dollar and they push down asset prices, the problem is that their tax revenue generally starts to suffer if, if you look at, say, you know, tax revenue in the stock market, they're highly correlated because we financialized our economy so much. We also have a problem where if the dollar strengthens sharply, the foreign sector generally stops buying treasuries because they're, they're kind of more in defense mode. If anything, they're considering selling treasuries to try to backstop their own currencies and, and stop it from weakening compared to 
the dollar. So they're generally more in reserve accumulation mode when the dollar is weaker, because that, that's kind of their opportunity to create their own currency and go buy some foreign assets with it. And so you have these kind of feedback loops that I, I think it's going to, I often phrase it where the Fed can absolutely can tighten, but they can't normalize, meaning that, you know, they can go through a, a, a period of draining their balance sheet, getting a positive real yields, things like that, but their ability to, to get there and then maintain that. And that's just a new normal going forward where, you know, we're, we no longer have balance sheet expansion and we, we no longer have negative real yields. That's the part that I find unrealistic when I look at the debt picture uh, and when I look at uh, just some of the other dynamics, the social dynamics, the those those international feedback loops of, of dollars and treasuries and things like that. And then I look for, you know, kind of tail risks or tail opportunities that can affect that view. And so, for example, I've been monitoring stable coins as something that could change that because there's not a lot of demand from foreign central banks for treasuries anymore. But there is a lot of demand among the public, the international public, for dollars. And so to the extent that they're able to access stable coins, stable coins are in large part backed by treasuries. Um, it basically is now a new market for treasuries that didn't really exist a few years ago. And so I kind of watch for curveballs like that that can affect you know, the overall supply and demand and the, and the ultimate limiting factors of the Fed. But yeah, in general, I, I view them as being able to tighten, but not being able to normalize. And so the end game kind of being a melt up scenario ultimately? I think the end game is basically this this period of financial oppression similar to what we saw in the 1940s. Uh, I think Japan is kind of showing some degree of end game where you have an inability to tighten despite inflationary pressures. So you have sharp currency devaluation. And then what that does is it increases a country's nominal GDP uh, so that their debt to nominal GDP ratio goes down mainly because you're partially defaulting through inflation on those bonds. Basically, you know, there was a study that showed, uh, I think it was Hirschman Capital a few years ago, they showed that you know, whenever a country gets to 130% public debt to GDP, the probability of default over the next 15 years is nearly 100%, something like mm-hmm. 98%. And you know, the, their sample size was like 50 countries uh, and like you know, 49 out of 50 had that problem. And the one exception was Japan. They were able to kind of kick that can longer than anyone else. And But the mechanisms of default can, of course, vary. There, there's out, outright default. That, that's more common in emerging markets where they, you know, their debts are denominated in a currency they can't print, often dollars or euros. And so they're mm-hmm. more at risk of actual default like any, other, any company would be. Whereas for countries that control their own currency, the default is more likely to happen through inflation, where they're very unlikely to say, we can't pay it back because it's right. you know they they control the currency. Instead, it, they say, okay, we paid it back by printing the difference, and therefore you got every dollar you're owed, you got every euro you're you're owed, you got every yen you're owed, but they're worth half as much as you know the beginning of that contract or the beginning of that security, for example. And I, I think that's kind of the end game. But then there's all these you know there's curveballs like you know what happens with Bitcoin, how big does that get, and how quickly. Uh, what happens with geopolitics and reserve practices uh, that can really affect the the timeline and the speed of certain things playing out? How come has how come Japan is with all this intervention? How come they're able to not experience like a higher degree of inflation than they have over the last ten years or even the last year? You know, like so there's the, a couple- the, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. I was, I was just going to say, I mean, there's so much, as you just said, there's so much intervention and the central bank is buying equities and of course they're doing yield curve, yield curve control. And it's like, 
I mean, at some point, doesn't just rampant inflation have to show up? So there's a couple factors that they've had in their favor. Uh, one is that the country has a, until recently with the energy problems, uh, they've had a persistent current account surplus, uh, meaning that there's, you know, there's more value flowing into the country than flowing out because they're a rather productive society, uh, and quite hardworking and organized and low unemployment, and, uh, you know, kind of a good industrial base. Uh, so that's been a saving grace. They've also had the backdrop of a 10 to 15 year, depending on which commodity you're looking at, commodity bear market. Uh, and so there's generally been until very recently, no no shortage or price spikes of of key commodities that they need that are that are more likely to drive inflation, and then two, to the extent that they've ramped up their public sector debt, uh, they've partially deleveraged their private sector debt, uh, and when you pay back a loan, you actually destroy broad money. Um, basically, when 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 banks create loans, they create new deposits, they create more broad money. And then the opposite is true if that's paid down on net. And so they've had a situation where the government has increased their money supply by, again, until recently, it was something like 5% per year on average. Uh, but then you had like 2% per year reduction from corporate uh, and household deleveraging. Uh, and so the net result was actually Japan had one of the slowest broad money supply growth uh, in the world over the past uh, 10, 20 years. So despite the fact that we see their central bank balance sheet going vertical and looking like a Weimar chart, the actual broad money supply, meaning that the, the money that households and corporations and things like that have in their actual accounts for spending has not been very inflationary at all because you've had more of that, that transfer of debt from, public to, from private to public. Where that eventually runs out of rope is when you have global you know, underinvestment in commodities, and so you get more outright you know, energy and commodity inflation, um, and some of the other disinflationary things we talked about before, like you know the you know not being able to use China as a as a labor sink anymore, uh, and things like that. And so when when the whole world becomes more aging, like Japan is, then you know some of those some of those aging demographics can actually become inflationary rather than deflationary because they result in in labor shortages that we can't arbitrage with global uh, you know globalization anymore. So the short inches they've they've had a number of you know unusually strong tailwinds in their favor that have been able to kind of massage that and push that back as far as they can and even now when they're being start starting to actually be bit by inflation they're still not as vulnerable as we're seeing in Europe for example right. uh, they've generally they've generally managed their energy policy better than Europe for example so they they've been avoiding making uh you know most major missteps yeah well, I mean, it sounds like with this kind of trend toward deglobalization, uh, in addition to increasing commodity prices and maybe, you know, a, another commodity bull cycle, uh, that might break a lot of things in these places we've been discussing, you know, because if, if you're saying that their ability to cope basically was predicated on cheap labor and cheap commodities and cheap energy, uh, and that's part of the reason why inflation wasn't showing up as much as it might otherwise, then with more expensive labor and more expensive inputs and more commodity and, and energy, uh, then that inflation is probably going to show up a lot more. And I suspect that that's probably going to, uh, social issues are going to emerge in tandem with that. Um, but I could talk to you for hours, Lynn, uh, but I know we've gone a bit over now, so I'll, sh I'll shut it down. My last question is just, you know, we've, we've covered a lot uh, today. What, what's the thing that excites you the most about Bitcoin? You know, I think it's, Everyone who's, who I've spoken to um, who's gone down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, it's been an 
incredibly intellectually stimulating. It's, ca- it's been a cause for more hope in their outlook for the future of their own life and the world. In, in some cases, it's dramatically kind of reorganized their life and their perspective and, and what they're seeking to accomplish in the world. So I just love to know, you know, you, your, your work is so great and you're so highly respected um, in the space. In what, you know, what's the thing that you are most excited about or even appreciative about, about this whole Bitcoin phenomenon? I think part of it is some degree of inevitability in terms of the order of technologies that that come around and and so one thing I've emphasized in the past is that you know a lot of a lot of people in the gold community or a lot of people in the bitcoin community will phrase the the, the phenomenon of fiat currency as like a moral shortcoming like that it you know if, if countries had not gone down that road it'd be better xyz mm. and a counterpoint that I make is that when you look at you know roughly 200 countries in the world Roughly all 200 of them went down that same sort of route. And so the question becomes, if something does not exist, why does it not exist, right? So I, I generally view the emergence of tele- telecommunication systems as something that you know inevitably sped up our commerce compared to our bare asset money and made it easier and virtually inevitable that that money would be abstracted uh, and, then, and then corrupted. Uh, and that it's, 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 a, it's a nearly unavoidable phenomenon to have occurred uh, globally. And... So I think the the good so that's that's kind of kind of a depressing view that it's like it, it, the order of technologies that had to emerge kind of you can argue important in a, in a negative direction, but then you know if those technologies continue uh, you, and you see the rise of the internet and then you see the rise of cryptography and you see kind of a few of these discoveries being made, you can then and it's inevitable that someone will figure out how to put pieces together and create you know something that can that could potentially save the system from the problem it, it it's been building for you know a century and a half more or less mm-hmm. and so i think there's a degree of kind of elegance to that framework of technology creating a problem and then eventually down the road being able to also prevent present a solution to its own problem and so i'm i'm kind of optimistic about that in general i think more specifically i'm i'm pretty optimistic about what i'm seeing on the lightning network uh there's pretty good growth there i think that's hitting critical mass over the past year or two compared to how it was in its, its earlier period and then i also like some of the new privacy tools or new custody tools and things like that like i'm i'm pretty optimistic about fediment for example um i think that could that could fix some of the problems uh you know that bitcoin has related to fungibility and custody um, so I think it's it's really about the the sheer energy of the space and all the different layers and solutions and hard work that that you know thousands of developers are still pouring into this network to make it more usable uh, every day. And then the more usable it is, the more censorship resistant it gets because you know in a world where you know lightning doesn't exist and no one's developing uh, you know good applications to make it easy to use and people only ever just buy it from an exchange and then hold it and then sell it back to an exchange you know that's a world without much censorship resistance you, you, if you if there's only a handful of checkpoints to get back into you know spendable currency then that reduces the censorship resistance of the network whereas having more merchant acceptance having you know just greater ability to to move bitcoins around for different purposes increases the censorship resistance of the network and therefore makes the entire asset more attractive to hold so it's like there's multiple flywheels in place uh that i think are i think i'm you know optimistic on and that you know it's not without risks but it's something that uh just looks more and more kind of inevitable by the day uh and then so the the question becomes how do you just not mess that up how do you (laughs) you know what, what what it's like 
don't identify how you can exceed, but uh, succeed, but identify ways you could fail and then try to make sure you just avoid those paths. Yeah. Very sage advice. Um, and just the last one, as you mentioned, you know, you, you started learning about Bitcoin as a result, at least partially about being critical of the existing system. Uh, has learning about Bitcoin as a potential solution to that which you were formerly critical instilled like, you know, a sense of hope or enthusiasm or, you know, has it changed your perspective on the future at all? It makes me more optimistic because, you know, it's, it's, it's never good news if you just say, here's a problem and I have no solution for it, right. but I just want to tell you about this problem. Yeah. Um, or if the solution is very poor, like, you know, buy gold, for example. Uh, that's kind of the, the more depressing uh, type of defense. It's basically, if it's, if it's only ways to play defense against the problem. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas something like Bitcoin represents offense. It re represents, you know, something bigger, something new, something that can empower people in ways that they've never been empowered before. So instead of trying to revert, you know, some of the damage caused by technology to kind of a, a lesser technology time, it's about the application of technology to fix some of the problems that technology has, has given us. Um, and so although I monitor it for risks and things like that, the, the, the fact that there is a credible solution out there that fixes, you know, not every, not every shortcoming we face as, as a global society, but it certainly fixes, you know, it provides a, a credible alternative to a lot of the shortcomings we have in terms of monetary technology and, and, you know, the implications it comes with for human rights. And so it, I, you know, I can generally say that it does make me more optimistic on the world compared to how I think I would be if I was identifying the same problems with energy and same problems with money and, you know, things like that without having a, you know, credible alternative or solution to propose and instead just complaining about it or making people aware of it and then saying, I don't, you know, I just, I don't have a better solution. And it also represents ways to contribute. So, you know, People can contribute through education, they can contribute through code, they can contribute through money. There's different ways that then people can help shape the world that they see as possible and increase the probability that, that at least some degree of their optimistic vision can, can come to reality. I think that's extremely well put, and uh, I couldn't agree more. Lynn, I know I took a bit more of your time than, uh, than I promised. I could talk to you for hours, so hopefully we'll get a chance to do it again in the future. Um, it was great to connect in Norway. Thanks for the time today. And uh, any last words before we shut this down? Uh, no, I appreciate you having me. Uh, and if people, speaking of Norway, I guess, uh, uh, since that's where we met, um, people should definitely check out the Human Rights uh, Foundation uh, and some of the events that they do. And they also, they have a Bitcoin development fund uh, that goes towards things like uh, privacy developments. It goes through to things like uh, translating you know, a lot of times we, we write for the English speaking world mm. and, you know, the, 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 the people who need Bitcoin the most are often not in the English speaking world. And so, and it's not always, you know, the most profitable thing to go out and, and translate all that. So, you know, the Human Rights Foundation and, and other organizations, I think, are doing good work in, you know, bringing Bitcoin to the markets where it matters more. Perfect. Great way to close it. I fully endorse that message. Lynn, thanks again. And uh, I look forward to talking again in the future. I hope you all enjoyed this discussion with Lynn. If you'd like to hear more from her, follow her on Twitter at Lynn Alden Contact and check out all her incredible commentary and writing at lynnalden.com. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Closing the Loop, and we'll see you next time.